0: This is the Pink Smoke Podcast, and I, John Cribbs, I'm trying to bottle my anger here because we have someone here with us who would dare, who would deign to attack an American staple, an Oscar-winning, AFI-nominated, beloved Western by one of the most successful movie star, director, producers of all time. I I, I don't even know if we're going to be able to get through this episode. I'm so mad at you, Mr. David Lambert. How... What... What are you even thinking? What are you even thinking going against a movie like Unforgiven from 1992? I thought you liked Westerns, man. This is one of the great Westerns. What's your deal, bro? Uh,
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's one of the great Westerns. It's a movie I love. Um, but it's a movie that I... Uh, and really, I guess in the end, who gives a shit? But it's a movie that I get annoyed with the way it's talked about, not the movie itself necessarily. Uh, and in terms of its place in the Western genre, things that it gets credit for, uh, either innovating or doing first in the genre, uh, and also just things it gets credit for that it's not even doing, uh, that it's never even t- intending to do. Um, so first of all, I do want to say I love Unforgiven. I think it's <laughs> probably the best Western since... Peckinpah stopped making Westerns. It's better Um, than
2: Open Range, uh, in your opinion.
1: Much better than Open Range, yes. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, um, so I want to say that first, because it's a movie that I do love and respect and everything. Uh, And I think that it's a movie that can withstand this sort of, you know, nitpicky analysis, um, because I think that it's better to actually appreciate the movie for what it is and not for what it isn't. Because it's not a movie that is good enough to be heralded. I guess we should get into what critics say about it first, right? Well, we should, we should We should do right?
2: We should do two things first before we
1: get into yeah, what... I'm getting too much. Do it myself.
2: We should... Gotta John, stop. you should Morgan. introduce who our guest is and why we're having him on. Yes. And then you should take people who aren't familiar with the movie through just a thumbnail glimpse of the plot or people who have seen it who need a reminder.
0: Yes. I should say that obviously my... Intro was, you know, a joke. I, I, this whole thing is based on uh, Mr. David Lambert, historian, artist, writer, uh, a Twitter thread that you did, that you started. I couldn't believe it when I, I, this is the first time I sat down and read the whole thing in one sitting. I was used to seeing like little bits of it here and there, you know, pop up every once in a while. I was shocked to discover it was a year ago that this, uh, that you ended this Twitter thread uh, that you last worked on it. So uh that's what we're that's what we're kind of uh talking about here is your unforgiven Twitter thread where you kind of started talking about these unravelings of this classic film. Um and uh it's it's so disappointing too to say to get to the end of it and be like, "Oh no, where's the rest?" <laughs> you know, it really is like, "Oh no, like I, this is a series I'm enjoying so much, but that's why we wanted Chris and I wanted to have you on the episode to kind of talk about the thread and then kind of extend some of that and kind of get some more of your thoughts that you didn't get to some of the topics on Unforgiven you wanted to get to. Um, is that okay with you, David? Is it all right if we kind of uh, get into that?
1: Yeah, certainly. And uh, I, I will finish it at some point, I think. Uh, maybe this is my way of forcing myself to actually finally to finish the whole thing. I don't ever have these things planned out. That was like, oh, it's 30th anniversary coming up. Maybe I should write something about it. And then that, that's what I wrote. So <laughs> but,
3: I mean, uh, you,
0: this 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 thread. I mean, it's like it's a freaking course in in westerns. You know, I mean, it's one of the most amazing things that's ever been done on Twitter. We absolutely love it. I enjoy revisiting it and like rereading things and learning new stuff. It's got me to read uh, books and see movies that I hadn't uh, seen or haven't seen for a long time. So like, just it's just so awesome, man. <laughs> we really enjoy yeah, this opportunity fantastic. to talk to you about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and um I guess my my I'm on I'm David Lambert art if you want to find my Twitter. <laughs> 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 I guess we'll put the plugs for later. But uh um but uh yeah and, and, and the I guess one of the disappointing things about unforgiven, and this happens with the Western genre, it happens with probably every genre, is that the people that do praise it and prop it up as as this really seminal, thing, this, the culmination of the genre, whatever you want to say, are the people that are not, they're not people that are like anti-Western, you know, it's a weird thing where it's like, these aren't, these are people that supposedly like Westerns, but it's like, so why do you have to insult the genre to say Unforgiven's good? Isn't it good enough? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, isn't it a good enough movie on its own? Um, my,
0: my kind of, my kind of reaction to it, you know, kind of based on your thread in more as like a horror movie fan than a big western fan is like anytime a horror movie comes out that gets like super praised and critically loved it's almost uniformly by people who don't like horror movies you know and or or, or
2: don't watch them regularly then, you know yeah
0: not don't know them very like, well
2: yeah like i guess i'm watching scarecrows right now it's not that guy it's always the guy who's like what are the five greatest horror films? And Silence of the Lambs is on that list, which is a great movie, but it's not like when you're bleeding your brain inside. It's always
0: somebody who says, "Hey, they made a zombie movie and it's political." Whoever thought of that? You know, that's <laughs> yeah, almost yeah. always the reaction. Well,
1: and so, yeah. and, and, you know, and and that's annoying and, and whatever. Like for me, I guess I'm less annoyed by people that aren't really that into westerns. It's more so people that dip their toes in. Yeah. And it's happening to every genre, yeah. and then think that they're expert. I got this. I got this figured out. I kind of yeah. know what it is. You know, that's why you get people that say, hot take, uh, spaghetti westerns are better than American westerns. It's like, yeah, you just haven't seen enough of either of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so,
2: yes. I'm Leone sorry. movies I'm are great. better than, you know, John Ford, possibly, but like Sergio Martino movies are not better than Howard Hawks. Like, the step down from the top to the next step is such Uh-oh. a precipitous drop off there.
1: I'll just say somebody, and I love spaghetti westerns, but somebody that tends anything like that, to me, I hear it, I say, this is somebody saying that Stevie Ray Vaughn is better than Robert Johnson. It's just like, (laughs) all right, conversation's done. (laughs) Okay. So, um, but, uh, and no, Sergio Leone is not Stevie Ray fucking Vaughn. I'm not saying that. Okay. Yeah. But,
2: uh, Right? Is that what you're trying to say? What was that? He's Ingvay Malmstein famous like classic metal rock impresario who plays oh. you know, he's like you know joe satriani and spandex kind of type you know
1: oh okay yeah i'm not i'm not familiar <laughs> you're <laughs> um, not familiar with terrible
2: metal virtuosos that's a no not the knowledge of mine um guys before it, it, we dig in too far john yeah. just take us through the plot yeah. the movie well, okay? yeah i do i do you guys are both so steeped in this film. I don't want the listener to get lost. So if I keep pulling you back, you know what I mean to say, well, explain what this is, explain what that is. It's because I don't want you guys to, you know, this is like an advanced studies episode, but I don't want to be completely impenetrable to beginners like me.
0: Yes, no, not, I agree. It's, it's very, it's very, very, show. very important to like contextualize this film coming out in 1992, Clint Eastwood in 1992, and and how funny it is to think about how much more success he'd have after this movie when everyone considered it like a culmination of his career. Yeah. Uh, but it came out, and people obviously went apeshit for it. Clint Eastwood, you know, had starred in so many iconic Westerns for Leone, and once he directed himself, Outlaw, Josie Wales, High Plains Drifter, etc. cetera. The Western, you know, mythology of film, really, in the second half of the 20th century, was all Clint Eastwood, and that that mythical gunfighter. So to make a movie like unforgiven which is the story of an uh retired gunfighter William money a widowed who's now a widowed farmer uh who is called back to do uh, you know one last job to do one assassination on these Cowboys who have uh, mutilated a prostitute in a c- town called old whiskey um big whiskey, big whiskey thank you um, you know, it it just seemed perfect. It was absolutely perfect for him. And I think, you know, beyond the idea of like, you know, the Western, where the Western was at, where the genre was at in 1992, it was where Clint Eastwood's career was in 1992, how he was an iconic movie star. And now this is his, going to be his final thought on the Western movie that he had popularized and how American, most Americans knew the Western film. So that I think, you know, has obviously has a huge impact on its legacy has had a huge impact on me. It was that was like the first year I got seriously into film 1992. It's the first year I watched the Oscars. I watched Clint Eastwood sweep up, you know, the Oscars that year. I went and saw Unforgiven in the theater and I fucking loved it. I, you know, it just blew me over even without seeing a ton of Westerns at that time, you know, even being not super familiar with the genre Coming out of it, I was like, that's the best Western ever made. Nothing's ever going to top it. You know, I mean, you just have that. It has that level of importance kind of immediately. It's just a cool movie. I I still think it is. I still think it's an incredibly cool movie. But I agree. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've got to say, as a, as a novice, I watching it this time, I texted John. When I was watching it. It's Unforgiven is cool. That's what I texted when I was watching it. When I saw it as a kid, I was much more, I think I came from a different angle of it. I always hated Hollywood and the Oscars and things like that. So I had an immediate allergic reaction to people saying, this is the greatest whatever. I was like, Hollywood is always up its own ass. If they say it's great, it's probably not that great and there's probably better things. I also, you you touch on it a little bit in the thread, but I had a lot of objections as a teenager to its moral philosophy and sort of its relationship to, you know, what we're going to talk about on this episode of, like, enough with the bullshit. Let's get to the truth of what the Old West was really like. And, you know, I feel like I met the movie on its own terms. And I had a reaction of, like, you know, how you would know this number. How many people did Billy the Kid kill in his life? It's like two, right? Maybe three, you know? and. Um... Six, maybe four, four to six. Yeah, it's a very small number, though. In the final scene of this movie, William Money comes in and kills six guys in one scene. And so I had this reaction of like, oh, we're going to get to the truth of what the Old West was like and what these gunfights are like. And it immediately ends with a badass dude killing a bunch of people more than the most famous outlaws really killed in a single gunfight, you know, or certainly was the norm. Like if six people got killed in a gunfight, that would have been a pretty notable event in old west history or i or was my teenage self wrong about that i just sort of had a reaction of like this feels like bullshit on its own terms that the movie itself set out of like we're going to get to the realness and then it culminates in a very hollywood type shootout scene now that i'm older i'm like man that seems fucking great <laughs> you know <laughs> now that i'm older it's like all oh, these lines are badass everything's awesome you know this rules is my reaction to it now but when i was a kid I definitely had some kind of like, this is this is phony. This is claiming to be something different than the history of westerns before it, but it's more of the same sort of thing. Or maybe it's repackaged almost as like an 80s action movie would be. To me, the ending played like Stallone walking in and killing everybody, you know, with a little bit more poetic writing to it. But yeah.
1: Well, as I, mean, I get older,
2: I'm like, you know, what's great when Stallone walks in and kills everybody? That's a great ending to a movie. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I mean, well, that's how I was when I was younger when I first saw it too, and and I didn't like it very much. Uh, yeah, we'll get into that climax and 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 what is it actually doing in terms of what's it saying about violence and what yeah. is it saying and what is it not saying. Yeah. Um. Yeah. um but uh, um. Yeah, I had come to it. Uh, I mean, I was already aware of it when it had come out. I didn't see it in the theater I was like eight or something mm-hmm. nine um but um I, after I started getting into western's you know through the wild bunch, uh this was one that was like, yeah, unforgiven. it's the great fucking western you know old guy killing people western. it's a meditation on violence it's so rough, and mean, right and I watched it I was like, what the fuck is this especially after seeing unforgiven I mean, I was a teenager I was like sixteen. Yeah. Uh, after seeing the wild bunch i'm like this this doesn't what this is just a bunch yeah. of guys who look they're all dressed like my dad
3: okay <laughs> uh
1: and then they're just kind of just talking and it's it's just a bunch of talking and it's just lame ass i mean the build-up is cool but then the actual the actual violence that's in the movie is pretty you know on an aesthetic level not the most exciting thing yeah. um so When I first came away from Unforgiven, I didn't hate it, but I was like, what the fuck was that? I don't know if I had, you know, revisited revisited it not long after that, or if I had actually found the screenplay. But, um, my appreciation for the movie really started to come through the screenplay, having read the screenplay, um... And so, yeah, and so... And
2: just, just as an aside, can you tell the history of the screenplay and the production of this movie? Because people, people might not know.
1: Yeah, well, the screenplay was written by David Webb Peebles in the 70s, and he was a guy who is not... He does not have a lot of affinity for, like, westerns uh, yeah. or he classic. Probably best
2: known of- is the writer of Blade Runner, right? That's that's yeah. what I always think of him as. Yeah,
1: yeah Blade Runner, later 12 Monkeys... Um, But um, yeah, so he he's not he was not a big fan of the classical Western. um, uh, And he was tired of movies that he thought were very flippant with violence, with the the way they portrayed violence. Um, And so he had sworn to himself he was never going to make a movie with any killing or violence in it.
3: Yeah.
1: And then um, or he was never going to write one. So he he uh, he ends up seeing taxi driver and says, well that's a movie about violence that is entertaining but actually has weight to it. it it's not just you know a uh, uh, you know a flippant exercise in, in you know pyrotechnics, right uh, So that was one thing that sort of changed his mind and the other thing was the novel The shootest and we'll probably get into that later yeah. but that was a big influence but but he wrote the he wrote the screenplay in the late 70s. Uh, It was optioned by Francis Ford Coppola, and it was going to star John Malkovich in the early '80s. Um, But I think after you know One from the Heart, he was like maybe a western is not the way to get back on top, (laughs) (laughs) you know, of the box office. So um, so then it ended up you know getting to Clint Eastwood's people who initially rejected it because it was so you know so violent and, and its original
2: uh, title was the cut whore murders, right? Is that just impossible? The,
1: the the cut whore killings. Cut whore. It was the cut whore killings and then it became the William Money Killings. And then it became Whore's gold. It's a horrible title. That's the and then title becomes... I've ever heard. <laughs> what whores
2: gold is the worst title I've ever heard for a, a movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a part in the movie where where little Bill does say there's no whore's gold. So maybe that was the they were they really thought so anyway, by the time it gets to Clint Eastwood, you know he classes it up. Not gonna be the cut whore killings anymore. He just borrows *Unforgiven* from *The Unforgiven*, from the you know the John Huston movie from the Alan LeMay novel. But that's what I was given. Not a fucking as a,
2: as a kid, with *Unforgiven*, Metallica the year before had a massive hit with the song *Unforgiven*, and as I was a kid, I was like like surely this title must be related to this super hit song you know what i mean it's like if you named a movie in the 50s the twist you know what i mean it really felt like this have to do with this so i was actually it was going to be a question is like did that did that is that where it came from because but it's interesting it has an actual realistic reasonable answer to that question
1: yeah yeah (laughs) i uh and and i mean it's it's thematically appropriate yeah. I personally I want to see the cut horror killings.
3: Yeah.
1: That's my movie. But that doesn't win best picture. So. <laughs> um but uh so uh so yeah, so it was very much written in that time of the 70s western the quote-unquote revisionist western, the dirty little billies, the hunting parties, the uh the docks, the you know, the Great Northfield Minnesota raid movies, the real gritty westerns that are supposed to be what the west was really like okay um and uh and it's absolutely of a piece with those movies and 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 yeah it's it's
0: origins in those films specifically and not classic westerns to me is the craziest thing about the critical reaction to unforgiven like this doesn't exist without vietnam parables like ulzana's raid right and little big man and jeremiah johnson and all that kind of things that they were doing in the the 70s where you know the kind of I guess Peckinpah still making movies, but it's kind of more the post Peckinpah era of you know just this gritty, realistic Americana revise. You know, in a way that uh, westerns weren't going to be the same again. Like you couldn't like Silverado might be the exception, but you, like you can't make like a rootin' tootin', having a good time lassoing the villains western again after these movies come out.
1: Yeah, exactly, and and um, and and the thing is. You know, if 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 Unforgiven had been made in the late '70s, I will. I, I always think it would be regarded as a great film. I don't know if it would be regarded as an innovative, like an innovative film. You know what I mean? It's like the difference between Unforgiven and so many of these other downbeat, realistic '70s westerns is just that. Unforgiven is a better written movie. It's a more cathartic experience. It it it, uh, and we'll get into it too. But it ends the way you want a fucking Western to end. It's not a damn beat Western where the guy, you know, uh, walks away at the end, nothing, ha- you know what I mean? Like you think there's going to be a climax and there isn't, or, you know, it's not that a. It
2: really, um, reminds me of El Topo in the sense that like El Topo is pretending to be a pacifist movie the whole time, but then he still has everybody. He goes into town and kills all the bad guys. And it has that same sort of, you know, hearing David Wade people wants to make a movie without violence, but without violence, but then ends in a very satisfyingly violent scene. It has, it has the El Topo problem of, or even the roadhouse problem of like, nobody wins a fight, but, but of course me, you know, Dalton, I win a fight. You know, it has that same sort of thing just to, to contextualize my objections. And El Topo is like, obviously the same era when the script is written. I think a lot of those seventies Westerns have the problem of let's, let's, be realistic about violence and let's um show violence as it really is, but it still ends up in a movie. It still ends up as movie violence. It's very, it's very, very difficult to do that without having the guy walk away or the hero lose or at how to be different, you know? But I agree with you that, that Unforgiven is just better written than a lot of that stuff, but it ends up being written. You know what I mean? It's still a script. This is very much a script, I think. I was going to ask yeah. you, how close is the original script to the finished Eastwood thing? How much of it is, is Eastwood's impression of, on it of the development? And how much of it is from uh Web People's original script?
1: The the film is very close to the script. Um it's it's almost uh, it's almost insane how close it is to the script in terms of just, you know, uh the, the biggest thing is that. Clint would cut a scene at the end where William money visits his children, which we can kind of talk about, but, uh, he, t- he took down some of the profanity. Um, he took down a lot of the more grotesque, uh, maybe Fellini esque elements of the script. Have either of you guys read the script? No. Or, oh, I should have sent it to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I read the script. Cause it's like a, it's like a brilliant, like novella, the, the, the way that even the, the way the prose is written and everything, it's, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's a better script than Unforgiven is, a movie, but Whoa. Unforgiven is a movie still. I, and in terms of screen, I, I don't. In terms of when you're reading a screenplay, like in the screenplay format, it's a better screenplay than Unforgiven is, a western. I yeah. think, but uh, um, it's just it's just way more um, gritty and nastier. Little, you know, it's. Uh, every character is deformed. They all have pock marks from the pox. Um, uh, William Money is known as Three Fingered Bill because he shot off a bunch of his fingers throughout his life, drunkenly gunfighting. <laughs> uh, so uh, obviously, Clint Eastwood did not want to do a whole movie where he had to wear prosthetics where he only had three fingers on one hand, right? Uh, the Schofield kid is missing his teeth, front teeth. Everyone's everyone in the movie is has some kind of either um uh deformity or scar, something, you know. Uh and really the only thing that's retained of that element is the guy who's missing one of his arms, which is like, just give the guy two arms, Clint Eastwood, if you're not gonna get a guy, why why include him? What is he adding there? Outside yeah, of distracting. It is, you, but it's you, a really
2: good joke. Them? You got three. Oh. You got three guns and only one arm.
1: That's that's yeah, well. Get a guy with w- with only one arm then. Okay, so I don't have to look at the guy's <laughs> fucking arm tucked in his shirt. Come on. <laughs> so,
0: so you're saying you fired me as a deputy because I only have one arm?
1: Well, I'm just saying, like, if you're not gonna if you're gonna get lazy with the not doing the missing fingers of the missing teeth, and I understand that, get the missing arm shit out of there too. Why are, we, why are you keeping it? Anyway, I don't know why I'm harping on that aspect of it. But but uh, yeah, they're actually very close. But the but it's just this this this. Uh, The script just has a feeling and a tone and an atmosphere that I get from the prose that I don't think a lot of the movie really has. I think the movie has it does have atmosphere, especially in the in the end scenes. Um, But it's not really like I said, like I said, you know. Gene Hackman just looks like he stepped out of a out of, out of a Coles or something, you know. What I mean? he, he he dresses <laughs> like my dad going to church or something. Even the cowboy, he looks like he wore his regular clothes when he got on set. Like, I'm not wearing any of that shit. I'm just gonna keep this on. <laughs> but so, so it's like the when you read the script, it's you're more transported to this uh um this more um, heightened gritty, nasty Western world, more Cormac McCarthy, more in a, maybe more in a, like a Fellini Western sort of way a, these weird yeah. bossy characters and elements. Um,
2: that almost A little bit of um, what you're saying, because you did send me a script, which was Milius's script for the life and times of judge Roy Bean, which has an almost like Fellini carnival-esque quality to it as well. Is it more like that or is it something different?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it is to, yeah, to an to an extent, but, th- but it's just because, it's just like uh, it's just smaller elements and things it's not like there's huge changes yeah. uh, it's, I, it's maybe it's a little hard to explain i guess i'd say if you have you both did you both read the shootist or just chris i did
2: just
3: read the book okay. i'm sorry so, not enough homework
1: even though even though like there are big changes between the the novel and, and the movie most of the scenes that the shoot, the novel and the script share, or, or the novel and the film share, are similar, uh, are, are are almost the same. But the tone, the feel, everything's different. And I think something is similar about uh, the Unforgiven script and the and the movie. Clint Eastwood definitely classes it up. The the the, the David Webb well people's script is a little little dirtier, dirt under their fingernails, na- nasty details that you would want.
0: I I think so. the Biggest difference too, thematically, between the shootist and Unforgiven, and as you mentioned in your thread, yeah, I mean, I don't think Unforgiven exists without the shootist, which uh, is a novel written by uh, Glendon uh, Swat Swatout. Is that how you say his last name? Swartout. I always say Swartout. Swartout. Glendon Swartout. Uh, in the mid came out in the mid seventies and was pretty quickly ad- adapted by Don Siegel for John Wayne's last film. Uh, and is, you know, a film about an, uh, a gunfighter who's passed his prime and has is slowly dying of cancer. Right. Uh, and so all of that's not what Unforgiven is about. Certainly things about, you know, his past and how people react to him, his reputation preceding him and the reality of what it's like being a shootist in a Western. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is Unforgiven uses the term assassins a lot more than like shootist or gunfighter. I was kind of curious about that word, but The shootist, I think the the big difference between that and Unforgiven is that it's, it questions, you know, how do you deserve, like, do you deserve dignity and death, you know, after living a life like this? Whereas Unforgiven, I think, wants to ask, can you be a different person? Like, can you actually turn into someone completely different and not be that uh, son of a bitch, mean killer anymore? I think that they are, you know, different contemplations, but kind of, they're they're definitely walking down the same trail at the same time
1: yeah well unforgiven is very different from the shooters uh in many ways like thematically they're not they are not necessarily treading the same ground the interesting relationship between the two is more so that one i think the shooters showed david webb people's sort of a entryway into the western genre um Mm And also he is he lifts things from it that he then uh, repurposes or, you know, he doesn't he he's he's he, he's obviously doing something that has a, the dark tone of the shootist and uh, a similar approach to, uh, you know, to violence and, and and that type of stuff. But more so. Uh he just takes he just lifts things from the shooters wholesale <laughs> but develops them on his own. So uh the big thing from the shoot is outside of just your general ideas of you know, an aging gunfighter, standard Western tropes, the aging gunfighter, the young hotshot kid who wants to be a gunfighter, um the uh you uh, you know the the barroom gunfight at the end, uh, uh, all the the gunfight training stuff. All, all, that's all standard western. The,
0: the pure woman who could redeem him somehow.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. So it's like a lot of the a lot of the stuff that they share. You could say that's just that's just someone writing a western. It's, the stuff that's more specific. Is the big thing is that the entire impetus for the story in Unforgiven is lifted almost wholesale from a some, from a throwaway scene in the shootist that is not in the movie um and so in the shootist there's this young character this young punk gunfighter who uh is all pockmark and nasty he goes he he gets drunk decides to go to a whorehouse he's never been with a woman i don't think right so he goes to a whorehouse um but he's drunk he can't get it up so the you know uh so he takes this out on the prostitute, you know, and he and he rapes her with a gun barrel. Um, and then, you know, the pimp comes and shoot, yeah, shoots, shoots out. He shoots it. it basically, it, this whole thing is, a, is is all just kind of this character's backstory to establish him as a villain uh, in the shoot is. And it's clearly the scene in Unforgiven. Where Mike, I think the guy's name is Mike, and Dave go with the prostitute. She laughs at his small dick. He cuts her face up. It's obviously that scene from the Shootist, except he goes, "What if we start the story around that?" You know what I mean? It's a direct lift. I, and this is stuff that David Webb Peoples has admitted. He, I'm not. This isn't some like sleuthing I did and went, "Oh, David <laughs> Webb Peoples is very open about the influence of the Shootist on, on Unforgiven." Um, the other thing is, you know, the scene in the Shootist where he's having these opium dreams and stuff. He has this dream about his grandmother's bloated corpse when he was a kid. They tried to fit it into a coffin, and it, they couldn't keep the they couldn't keep the coffin lid closed because it heated up. And um, but he has this whole thing about how he's scared to die, and he has these visions and stuff. And David People says that, that was really the starting point of writing the script. The scene in Unforgiven where the main character talks about how he's afraid to die was like the first scene he wrote. Right.
3: Yeah. Um,
1: such a good, theme. so obviously that stuff is there. The, the character of, 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 uh, the Schofield kid and Gillum are obviously, you know, related to each other in their own ways. Um, one uh, thing and... you mentioned
0: in the thread too, similarity is the death of queen Victoria having just happened in the shootest and then of yeah. course Garfield having just been shot in unforgiven kind of both representing like the end of an era in their w- own way another kind of interesting similarity is that McKinley visits uh El Paso in the shootist that everyone's going to go see him oh, and yeah, that's when yeah, books yeah. wants to go out and have his like last wagon ride i thought that was interesting another assassin eventually assassinated a president making an appearance in this western
1: yeah 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 and and, and thematically in the shootist it's like you know Queen Victoria, the Victorian era is ending. The era of the gunfire fighter is ending. All that, whereas in Unforgiven, it's more so kind of as this background of like these guys are assassins, right? The president has just been killed by an assassin. These guys are Charles Gateau. You know what I mean? These are the equivalent. These are our heroes and our villains. You know what I mean? So that's that, where
0: your thread ended. Was pointing out that English easy, Bob that. has Charlie Guiteau's, uh tiny little pistol
1: yes, right he inside the same of his Yes, yeah. So there's a lot, a lot of that kind of stuff there, and and that's what's brilliant about Unforgiven is that the lifts are very clear to me, but he repurposes them. He it's not a it's he's not doing it as an homage or anything like that. It it, it is a it is a different animal, you know. Um,
0: but also, since you're such a well, stickler to historical accuracy, I'll just point out how English Bob says specifically injury to your president because at that point, you know, of course, Garfield took several weeks to die from his injury and probably wouldn't have if he had been cared for better but that's a whole other thread but the yes. fact that he was not assassinated by th- that day that he was actually shot and died several weeks later so good work unforgiven i'll give people's that for sure
1: yeah uh, um uh and then of course the other big thing that that is from the shootist, and it was old hat by the shootist, which we'll get into too but is the character of the dime novelist so in unforgiven W.W. Bochamp is clearly the Dan Dobkins, I think this is his name, character in the shootist, who is trying to write the story of, of uh JB Books, the shootest character who's dying of cancer, He's trying to write a book on his life. And he gets, you know, he basically gets a gun to the to his face for bothering him, right? Uh that obviously that happens in Unforgiven too. That's something that actually happened. Dude, Ned Buntline when he tried to meet up with Wild Bill Hickok for an interview. Ned Buntline is the guy who made Buffalo Bill famous, so that's probably where Glendon Swarthout got it from. I'm, I think David Webb Peoples just got it from Glendon Swarthout. But a, de- uh, a
0: detail that I love about that is uh, even though books you know runs him off and won't you know cooperate with him much like money does at the brushes off Bo Camp at the end of uh, Unforgiven, we do have uh, books meeting with like a photographer and an undertaker who just wanted to exploit his death. And accepts money from them. And in Unforgiven, uh, you see Beauchamp running around with English Bob, and he's paying for everything. He's paying for his haircut and for his dinner and everything. And uh, we kind of see yeah, how yeah. English Bob is—you know—the reason he's running around with this guy is basically this guy is his meal ticket, right? He's just taking—he's not his meal ticket, but he's—he's uh, he's comping everything for.
1: Him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that that stuff is clearly from the shooters, but also that's also standard genre stuff you know and a lot of that is stuff that is already old by the shoes
2: yeah not to interrupt but to take us through that that sort of standard western stuff you know like the like the the history of the western where it's at and that sort of thing that you wanted to to talk a little bit to set the stage about
1: yeah yeah are we setting the stage finally (laughs) (laughs)
2: 40 minutes in
1: this You guys have to keep me under control. I'm telling you, I'm going to go off. Oh, on it's
2: episode. great if you want to do a four-hour episode, we'll do it. Like for real, I could listen to you talk about it all day.
1: Um. So, so I guess what I should talk about, in, in relationship to uh, uh, how Gone forgiven is talked about, is you know, it 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 gets credit for being a film about uh, a western that that takes violence seriously that questions. The law that you know has these these characters that are more uh uh you understand their motivations they're not just uh, all good or all bad they're not you know all that type of stuff that we've already gone over and all that and uh but it's like uh you know when you look at the western genre it's like what is it doing different right so so if we jump back to the virginian which is considered by many to be kind of like the first Western it's not, but it is kind of the Western that, that, to well, the Virginian is for Western, just the Western genre, literature and eventually movies, you know, is to what stagecoach was to Westerns, you know, it kind of became the standard people. Once it, once it came out, you kind of had to, if you were working in that genre, you're going to either be in that mold or, you know, you you can't avoid it. And the same thing with post unforgiven Westerns too. Right. But The Virginian is the most influential Western of all time. And uh, not to get too much into its backstory and everything, but uh, it was written in in the early 1900s by Owen Wister, who was an Easterner who actually did go out to Johnson County during the Johnson County War uh, Mm. and wrote this novel. It is about the Johnson County War, uh, which is the same stuff as Shane, Heaven's Gate, same storyline. Except in this one, the villains of Shane and Heaven's Gate are the heroes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so um so uh but uh, uh but basically the virginian is um it it is owen wister was an acolyte of oliver wendell holmes jr i think jr are you familiar with oliver wendell holmes
2: <laughs> the supreme court justice
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. So there was senior
2: and junior. Right. So junior is not the Supreme Court justice.
1: Yeah. I think junior was the sort of a I don't know, what would you even call him? A pseudo like philosopher type guy. I don't He's know. Just
2: like a dilettante.
1: Um, yeah. I don't know. He said things, but he had he had these concepts. And, and Owen Wister was the guy who followed him. He had these concepts about uh, common law. Uh, he he said, you know, I think the idea that all men were created equal is absurd. This is what Oliver Wendell Holmes said, right?
2: Well, Oliver uh, Wendell and- Holmes Sr. was a famous conservative. He's the one who coined the um, falsely yelling fire in a crowded theater. And, and yeah. In terms of that, free speech doesn't cover falsely yelling in crowded theater, like in this case, which was about a pacifist printing anti-World War One pamphlets which was his idea of shouting, falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. The falsely always gets left off. But he was a famous like conservative yeah. dickbag dipshit who I'm sure did not believe in the equality of all man.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I'm, not, I'm trying to remember if it was him or his son. They both were influential, but uh, but uh, uh, one of the two uh, had these ideas about common law. Uh, and it's basically like Power, right? in a democracy the populace elects uh, the government right and yeah. so if let's say you are on the frontier and you're overrun with rustlers who are stealing your cattle uh, and every time they go to, to court or there's no law they get exonerated or whatever so then the populace decides to take the law into their own hands well, they're the ones that elected the government that's not representing them. So if they take the law into their own hands, that's fine. That's common law. Okay. Um and then there are and then Bowen well, Worcester takes that and not only applies that to communities, it but he also applies that to uh uh these western his Western hero, this Western archetype. Uh that he that he thought about Westerners as an Easter going there, seeing these guys who were tough and gritty and had their own code and uh, and uh, didn't take shit, you know, and had their own weird sense of honor and they had their own uh, ethics and their own code that transcended, uh, you know, the arbitrary nature of the law. You know, it's why there's the famous scene in it where in one scene, a character calls the Virginian, the son of a bitch and it's his friend and he it's okay. Another character calls him the son of a bitch. And he says, when you call me that smile, (laughs) <laughs> 'Cause it's about the code. The law is don't call someone a son of a bitch, right? It's all about it, you know, what is happening at that time. And so two things, he can make a decision on two different exact same things. He's he because he's so great, so competent, he's a knight of the plains, he makes his own law. That yeah. is what that is the Western hero, right? Yeah, yeah uh and so that is basically becomes the template for for western heroes zane gray was hugely influenced by the virginian and every other western since then uh uh kind of has that those same types of characters and the virginian it is. it's also not to harp too much on the virginian i want, I want to keep moving here sorry guys no, but no, there's no, no, little...
2: relax go at it. i love listening to all of this the okay. only thing i'll say is i is i did look it up Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. is the Supreme Court justice. The dad is like a poet philosopher.
1: Okay, so it was the yeah, I was the father then. Yeah,
0: um, it's definitely important uh, to set up the the Virginia because as a template, not just because that's what people modeled westerns after their western stories afterwards, but what people who praise Unforgiven as being this wholly unique and original thing don't realize is that people went against that template right moving forward as
1: well. Yeah. Yeah. So. So. So these ideas of of using but you know you uh, having to use violence to meet violence um, you know having to take the law into your own hands when it's not representing you all that stuff these are common things in the Western um, and and uh, you would be remiss to find a Western very few Westerns are about the the lawman who follows the law to a T very few movies period right who wants to see that shit right so so um, you know that kind of sets the values for many Westerns um and then and in in the virginian there it's also like an apology for lynching people extra legally not on the basis of their race they do make that distinction um but they say yeah if you're on the frontier and people are stealing your shit yeah you gotta hang them because there's no law around that's not actually even true for that time and place but that's what they were trying to peddle so um so basically uh um You uh, And then so in the Virginian, his friend gets caught rustling cattle. He has to hang his friend. Uh, It's very sad. And then he has this Easterner uh, schoolmarm fiancé who's horrified that he's done this thing. Uh, And then she's also the one that doesn't want him to go meet the villain at high noon in the street. Um, But he does it anyway. And what is he? He's rewarded for it. He gets to go live at the end of the, the last chapters are basically their honeymoon. Not the good stuff. Like, they're looking at flowers on a mountain. Or something. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so, so in the Virginian, because this guy's taking the law into his own hands and everything, like, he had to pay the price of killing his friend. But even his friend left him a note that said, I understand. You know, it's our code, right? Yeah. So it's okay. He had to hang his friend, but it's not that big of a deal. He gets the woman in the end. It's all good. Um, and how many Westerns follow that template? Not necessarily killing your friend, but the other stuff. So, well, Larry,
0: Larry McMurtry borrowed that with Jake Spoon and Lonesome Dove, right? That whole,
1: arc yeah, it's an, where they end yeah, up hanging it, their yeah, friend, and it's an exact lift, definitely. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. So, um, so taking that as sort of the you know beginnings of these western tropes, western hero tropes. Um, if we jump to the Oxbow incident, um, which you know, and which is what from forty three. Um, and it's 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 not necessarily, it's not really a movie that's a standard Western in terms of it doesn't have the tropes and the gunfights and stuff. Um, but if you were going to point to a Western that Unforgiven often gets credit for being uh, as like a refutation of the values of uh, the genre of frontier justice, of taking the law into your own hands and all that stuff, the Oxbow incident is that movie. Unforgiven is not that movie. Okay, the Oxbow incident. It's still, it's it's preachy, you know. It's but it's still a great movie and everything. And it's also a movie that uh, sticks to sticks to its vision. There's no there's no real compromise there. It doesn't end happy. It doesn't end in an action climate, you know. So if we were going to point to something that was actually spitting in the face of the values of the Virginian, it would be the Oxbow incident, right? Um, but let's say that's not in the classic Western mold. Okay. well, what about the gunfighter of 1950 and the gunfighter with Gregory Peck, the Henry King film, is obviously a huge influence on the shootist and obviously a huge influence on Unforgiven. And it's also a huge influence on just Westerns in general, the idea of like the young hotshots continuously trying to challenge the old gunfighter who wants to settle down. Uh, it's not the first to do that, but it's the first to really make that as if, <laughs> as if gunfighters is going every in every town, being challenged to constantly, you know? <laughs> um, but that is also, once again, th- that's a movie that, that takes the idea. I mean, in a way you could almost look at it as a weird sort of sequel to the Virginian or a sequel to all those William S. hart movies where the bandit finds a woman and finds love and gets, and, and, and uh you know settles into a life of domesticity right unforgiven could also be considered a sequel to that right yeah but the thing is in in um and william s hart
2: was like a um, silent movie actor for people who don't know who he is he's got a very like sort of he's uh, the uh, clint eastwood of silent movie. yeah very clint Eastwoodish face that's a very good comparison actually he's trying to yeah, think producer he's a producer and director also thin serious face He's not a charmer. He's very grave in his manner and and sort sure. of wears, he he almost has got a like a, a Mountie-ish sort of uh, th- Canadian forthrightness to him. Although I, I'm willing to bet he's not Canadian, but he has that kind of like very seriousness. And he was a huge, huge silent Western star. Is he the biggest silent Western star? Am I exaggerating to say that?
1: um i think he no i don't know if he was the biggest maybe at a a brief period but he was always about being more like authentic and and accurate more grounded and then people like the tom mixes and and stuff would come in but williams hart i believe he was from the east he might have been from new york he was like a shakespearean actor oh really Uh, yeah and then he didn't start make he didn't start like making western until he's like in his 40s so he was already old um but uh um uh but uh, and he almost never played lawmen or anything he was always a bandit he was always the bad guy who turns good you know because of the lovable woman and all that but, mm-hmm. uh, but the gunfighter could be seen in a way as a something of a sequel to those movies because this is a gunfighter who did settle down who did have a kid but that didn't take mm-hmm. and he tried to live his life uh uh doing whatever he wants, and it's caught up to him and now he longs for that domesticity again. He wants to rest, he wants to retire he's tired of being challenged he's tired of 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 what he's done with his life and the violence and everything so he's trying to reconcile his wife and kid and, and this town, his old friend, even the marshal the most one of the most sympathetic characters in the movie, even he has a violent past where he you know was in a robbery and maybe accidentally killed a young girl, you know. So the whole, so there's a pall of like violence that 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 hangs over the whole movie of the Gunfighter. Um, there are only a couple scenes of violence. They're very quick. One of them is the Gunfighter shooting Richard Jekyll, and you don't even see it. Richard Jekyll falls over, and by the time you go back to Gregory Peck, his gun's already out. You, you don't even get to see any blanks go off, right? Yeah. So you don't even get the pleasure of that. Um, and so, what? And so, once again, this spits in the face of this idea of the Virginian that you could you could hang your best friend or just shoot people and stuff and then settle into a life of domesticity. I mean, obviously people do that after coming home from war and all that stuff, but for many people, they cannot adjust that, that, that is always there. You know, that really is the message of these movies. When these movies start getting too navel gazy about the life of a gunfighter and they, try to analyze these genre tropes it's like you guys are just you're up your own ass because you're analyzing something that never existed you know
0: yeah (laughs) Yeah. well one of the things i love from your thread is talking about violence as addiction for these characters that it's not just a way of life or like a necessity when they're confronted with other, you know, violent men, it's something that they actually come to need in their yeah. lives.
2: When he's alcoholic. William Money has the little whiskey that he blames for everything. He keeps saying he doesn't remember anything. What did you, what was killing? Like, what was that case? He says, I don't remember. I was drunk. He has his little whiskey. And of course he goes back to do his killing in big whiskey. That's the big addiction is the violence in this town. He's got to clear out exactly like you're saying.
1: Yeah. uh Uh. and, and, yeah. And, and so the thing is, like, with with um, the gunfighter is once again, this is this would be a better example of a movie that flies in the face of the values of the Western or the Virginian of this idea that you can be a gunfighter and then think that you can just go back to uh, a wife and kid and everything's going to be cool. Like, it, it's just not how it goes, whether or not people are constantly going to be after you trying to kill you, you're the only, you know, the strain on your own uh you know mind it it, it was something that is going to get your uh you're not going to be able whatever you get my point
2: (laughs) i get exactly your point
1: so so uh so once again this is you know now the gunfighter and the oxbow incident are both movies that like i said are a little preachy uh i think they're both great entertaining movies i think the gunfighter is one of the best westerns ever made but,
0: you know, they are... I, I, I love Ox. Uh, I think that's a great movie. It's so stagey. You know, I mean, it's one of those, yeah. you know, based on a play kind of movies where they just cannot get away from the staginess of it. But really well written. But
1: yeah, and The Gunfighter is not based on a play, but it almost feels like it is because it's like all basically interior. It does.
0: It really does. Know? Yeah.
1: Um, but uh. so... So if we jump a little f- forward to Shane. So Shane is, I think, one of the best westerns. It's in the top three uh, for me. And and what Shane does is that it, it it takes it takes the tropes, it takes the structure, it takes a lot of the things from the Virginian, it takes the setting. Um, and it uh, uses them to it uses them to critique the virginian it uses its its own form to to critique itself right um and so there's obviously the similarities it takes place in the johnson county or it has this character who has his own code who beats violence when violence when he needs to um uh you know it has all it has all that stuff but what it does is it says that once again, just like with the gunfighter, you cannot settle into a life of domesticity. You know, you cannot you... you th- that's what Shane wants is what he won't get. The idea of, like, whether or not Shane is dead or not at the end, who gives a shit? He doesn't ever get what he wants. He doesn't get that life. You know what I mean? He doesn't get the domesticity. He has to sacrifice that. You know what I mean? To yeah. the greater good,
0: right? Like the samurai at the end of Seven Samurai who were left, you know, the villagers got what they want and they can continue their life, but they're still... You know, exactly. worries without a cause. Yeah. At the end and,
1: and that's why Shane works, because the thing is, Shane is not it's not it's not an oxbow incident. It's not the gunfighter. It's not a movie with like heavy. It's not a heavy movie with heavy messages. OK, it is a first and foremost, just a great classic Western. OK, told in the most brilliant stripped down way. Um, but what it does is it, is it takes those tropes from the Virginian and takes them seriously. And it says, yeah, if there was this character, he doesn't get to marry a lady at the end and everything turns out good. Okay. That's not how it goes. There is a price for this type of violence. And so that's why Shane to me is like, it's, it still gives me the John, the genre shit. I want, I want the gunfights. I want the fistfights. Uh, I want the character that takes the law into his own hands. Right. Who wants and to hear a story about the time bureaucracy helped you out, right? <laughs> no one did. Everyone's all you, gonna.
0: You're never gonna it, find a more black hat villain than Jack Balance and shit.
1: Yeah, well, so, but, but, uh, but, uh, and, it, and that's told from the point of view of the kid. So, so it's able to, uh, be that really straightforward mythological Western on, on that level. But if you wanna read into it more without it ever, you know, uh getting too on the nose you read about the you know all the under the surface stuff the attraction with marion and all the things all that is communicated so brilliantly no speeches (laughs) i mean there's a few there's a few but it's really it's no monologues no monologues about violence and all this stuff and guns and all that right um so so from there i think uh you know, so Shane is more of an idealized portrait because it's from a kid's point of view. Uh, but that's that kind of Shane idea of the and it's not like that Shane invented it, but it perfected it. But that idea of the guys who who have to do the dirty work, um, uh, which usually means violence in a Western, have to do the dirty work for society to flourish, the society that then they can't be a part of obviously that becomes The Searchers, yeah, you know? And The Searchers is told from essentially the perspective of uh, an older teenage character, no longer the little boy from Shane. And so you see more nuances to these violent guys. But in the end, still, it's the same me- message as Shane. He cannot enter the house. He does not get that domesticity. And that's not from the novel The Searchers. That's only in the movie. I'm pretty sure that they got that from Shane. Uh, 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 so... Uh, but, but from then I, but after Shane, it's like you, uh, that the, the, the best Westerns are the ones that can give you the thrills and stuff, but take that stuff seriously. Um, and and actually truly, truly examine it. Um, but we'll get into that later, but anyway, so, so, so yeah, so Shane, (laughs) (laughs) and then also Shane's attempts. And also Shane's portrayal of violence, uncompromising violence. You know the 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 loud gunshots, the falling in the mud, all that all that shit and everything, um, is is a uh, uh, stuff that becomes hugely influential to the genre from, from then on.
2: Fair to say, you know, you always hear about the '70s revisionist westerns, right? Spearheaded by Wild Bunch, as being like the sea change and the seismic change in the genre, right? But isn't it fair to say that the western is like revisionist from the beginning, like there's very few genres that looks at itself in the meaning of itself as a genre as much as the Western from the start, right? Isn't that isn't that fair to say that, that from the beginning that, you know, John Ford is a very self-reflective filmmaker. When he, after Stagecoach, he he starts thinking about what the Western means as a Western. You certainly have Anthony Mann uh, by the, by the, by the uh, late fifties and looking at the Western and considering its meaning and the actual psychological meaning. Is, is it, is it fair to say that it's in exactly what you're saying with Shane too and the gunfighter, the Western is is in very much in conversation with itself from the start about the meaning of these cliches and archetypes, right? Or am I or or is it or is the '70s really an explosion of it the way it's p- portrayed as being? Uh,
1: no, I think I think I think oftentimes the '70s is just where those aspects. Got emphasized whether or not they because they thought that's what audience on wa- audiences wanted or yeah you know, own that new freedom but but their storytelling just isn't there but but yeah you're right in the sense that yeah the, the I mean the thing about the western and the, uh, and the western genre is that it is it it is it runs concurrent with the actual west in in the sense that. That West, the West is, a, is it's an immediate, it had this, this, this immediate mythologizing of itself. Yeah. You know, the West was immediate, it made immediate myth, you know?
3: Yeah.
1: And so you, you do have a lot of Western literature from, from that era and everything. And, and you have all these different crazy point of points of view and perspectives and things. And so, you know, oftentimes like with the Virginian, the, the. The they become so big in the genre that it almost feels like the genre then just has to kind of go in that direction for a while, you know, but, uh but no, but like you said, the Western, especially at the start, if we're talking about like Western, like silent films, uh you know, someone could say it was like, like the wild West. <laughs> in the sense that everyone was just making these movies. And so you actually had, you know, old bank robbers, old gunfighters, old, uh, indian chiefs appearing in westerns or consulting on westerns you had you had uh, uh, uh john young deer who's the first guy to who was you know uh part black and part native but he only went as native at, at the time he was hired by Pathé. is that how it's pronounced Pathé, the french company Pat. yeah Pathé. <laughs> okay. uh so they were making westerns but they're people are like these aren't authentic you're a bunch of french dudes so they hired john young deer who had been working with D.W. Griffith as a technical advisor, and he wrote and starred and directed in a bunch of uh, of uh, co- indigenously-themed films where they're the heroes, where there's encroaching whites are the villains. And, you know, and so there's a... So, you know, there's a whole mosaic of the genre. It's, it's such a huge... It's such a huge thing, and so it's like, of course, there's always going to be the lazy ones and that's always going to be the big chunk of any genre that just kind of follow those things and yeah so it is easy to to pummel an entire genre if you're only thinking of the shit, you know yeah. but uh but if you're but if you at the same time if you've only ever seen the most lauded stuff you're only getting one small picture but like yeah. you said yeah it's it is you know, you will see movies from the beginning that are very pro indigenous. You will see the first cowboy novel was the administratrix about a lady who goes and dragged undercover as a cowboy to get revenge for her cowboy pro suffrage uh husband who's murdered. She goes undercover as a cowboy and she dies in a hail of bullets saying, You'll never take me alive. This was written before the Virginia, right? Mm-hmm. So She's
0: so suggesting Bad Girls is not a super unique yeah. movie itself.
1: No. Yes. Exactly. That'll be our next it's four hour epic. Who's bad your girls favorite bad girl? Who's your my favorite, favorite of the bad girls? Wait, in the bad girl movie?
2: Yeah, in the bad girl movie. I oh, know. John's a Stowe, one hundred percent.
1: I. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe now. I mean, I think when I I haven't watched it since uh, I think it came out. I think at the time I think I was there for uh, Drew Barrymore's boobs. I think so. Yeah. That's my vote. No, Barrymore was mine too.
2: Was yeah. mine too. Although as I have matured, I probably moved over into the Stowe camp as well.
1: Yeah, um, not as so we long. all do. Um, um, but yeah, but like, but like you said, yeah, the Western is is you you'd be almost hard pressed to find a genre that hasn't been more self reflexive, hasn't been more aware of its instant mythology. Um, even way back, if you go back to Henry King's Jesse James movie, there's a whole thing about the newspaper man who who keeps you know uh uh putting out pro james propaganda so that instant mythologizing is 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 as far back as that the diamond knowledge...
2: critique i mean what year is man who shot liberty valance you know what i mean which is about all of this you know what i mean this this is yeah. the same which, thing which, you know?
0: which i learned from your thread didn't even originate the line print the print legend
1: well, it originated the line, but it but the whole structure of the man who shot Liberty Balance is is the same as this William uh, Weiler. Well, well, uh, I think. Wait, yeah, uh, it's called the Great Man's Lady, and it's uh, and the structure of it is the, the, the themes and everything are just like the man who shot Liberty Balance. But the it's Great a completely man,
2: different. It's, it can't be Weiler. That's got to be Wellman.
3: Yes, yeah, it's it's Wellman. Top, yeah, oh, it was Wellman Yeah.
2: Well, could not be. Yeah, Wild Bill Wellman. Yeah,
1: Weiler's Wyler, Westerns are only like Hell's Heroes and and Big Country and Western. Uh,
2: big, big weepy, wet-eyed Westerns, I'd imagine. What was that? Big weepy, wet-eyed Westerns, I'd imagine. I haven't seen them, but...
1: Which one? A the Weiler
2: ones, yeah. Are they tough?
1: Uh, oh, the Weiler uh, Westerns are... are are. I always get the confused. Weiler is the Hell's Heroes, right? guy right he's the big country guy right
3: yes well yeah
1: i'm not wild on on the big country i think it's fine i like it but the westerner and hell's heroes i would rank uh as, as good as almost any western so
3: okay cool th- there's that hell's heroes so cool.
1: especially uh, uh people should check out if they want to see a is, western yeah. from 1929 yeah. that is just as mean and gritty and dirty as Unforgiven or or The Wild Bunch, awesome. so, but it's also a lot more saccharine too. It's got a little baby and Christmas shit in it too. But it's rough. It's a, it starts like a very rough. movie.
2: Is that the one that, that Three Godfathers is based on? Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um. Which yeah, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a rough movie, but um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So so oh, but yeah, that mythologizing aspect that Unforgiven gets praised for this. This WW Sam character w- was such a stock character by that point in Westerns. I think the 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 biggest one that I can remember that is so that is the most obviously in that mold would be from Arthur Penn's The Left Handed Gun.
3: Yeah. So
1: there's Billy the Kid Paul Newman yeah. movie. And that one has a character named Moultrie, who they yeah. is not a based on a real person. Um, but uh and he's this dime novelist who kind of becomes disillusioned with Billy the Kid and da da da. Yeah. And so, from
2: quite a bit. what I know, it's not popular. I like that movie quite a bit. I like Left Handed, yeah, uh, it's not my favorite. <laughs>
0: and then, speaking of Paul yeah. Newman, uh, Kurt Lancaster shows up as dead butt line in Buffalo Bill and the Indians, right?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, I uh, yeah, I have to watch that one again. That one, is, yeah. I haven't seen that in a long time. No,
2: no you don't. You, your memories of it are good <laughs> enough, that's one that can live in your memories. That's not, yeah, popular.
1: well, I I I uh, but uh, <laughs> so so yeah so by the time of Unforgiven, like not only has this, had this character been I mean it's obviously it's in the shoot is Sam Peckinpah himself plays a dime novelist in China Nine Liberty Thirty Seven. I mean by the at the time that Unforgiven was written, you'd be remiss to find a Western that didn't have some kind of dime novelist newspaper, you know instant mythologizing character that the movie could then kind of. Uh, uh, poke at you know this audience surrogate, like you don't actually know what this shit is like. That's a standard Western trope, you know. <laughs> and and for me, it's it, it more so, and it, and it's fine, but it, it more so speaks to I think David Webb people's ignorance of westerns, yeah, <laughs> western genre that these tropes that are so old hat to someone who would be more familiar do pop up in Unforgiven. He does them well. He does them great, but uh, I think that somebody would bar Steve in the genre would be like, "Are we really going to do a fucking dime novelist again?" Yeah, but uh, it worked because well, people that saw it thought that was amazing. That was the most I know me as a teenager.
2: Movie. I would that was the most uh, memorable character in the movie to me as a teenager. The scene in the jail where Gene Hackman is telling the 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 actual stories of what happened as a teenager to me, that stuff was like explosively interesting that was like I've never seen anything like this before but but you know I'm obviously as a kid especially completely ignorant of, of westerns I don't know if I'd seen a western before I saw Unforgiven it might have been the very first western I probably saw Silverado and Fandango to tell you the truth but other than those I, I hadn't I hadn't seen Fandango uh, what isn't that Fandango not what's isn't Fandango western what's the no. silverado is the is the are they
3: silverado
1: is the kevin reynolds, reynolds road trip movie
3: oh
2: forget it okay
1: um are you thinking of a different one like uh no i
2: i thought there were two kevin costner westerns with kind of funny names and it uh, turns out there's just one because i'm like eight when all of this is happening you're
0: thinking of
1: Boba rosa
2: <laughs> yeah we're cutting we're cutting all this
1: but um Yeah, I was wondering if you were thinking of Barbarossa.
2: I am definitely was not thinking of Barbarossa. That <laughs> definitely not. I
1: like it better than Left Handed Gun.
2: Barbarossa is good. Barbarossa is good. I always, I always talk myself into, um, to Fred Chapizi. That's Fred Chapizi, right? Am I getting everything wrong now? <laughs> no, it is right. Yeah. I, I think I because of because one of my because favorite of Terrence one, Rafferty. Yeah, yeah, Terrence Rafferty <laughs> is one of my favorite film writers, and he loves Fred Chapizi for some reason. So I'm always oh. giving Fred Chapie like Chan of, Chan of Jimmy Blacksmith. He makes that sound great, and all the time walking headfirst into Fred Easy movies, and that's that's one of the good ones. At any rate, so this is all a good good lead up. We should mention that in the '80s, westerns go completely dormant. Is that also true, or is that a cliche that's um, uh, about where westerns were at when Unforgiven happens? Is the is is the genre? closing up shop really in the 80s and then Unforgiven comes in as a capstone or is it still uh, fecund in some way Uh, you know because the the cliche of it is the 70s revisionist westerns come along and they're sort of like the swan song and then the 80s they're not really being made anymore and Unforgiven's the capstone to the genre and then it doesn't really exist after Unforgiven is sort of the way the story of the westerns are told in the popular imagination
1: yeah um yeah, I think that's true to an extent, and I do think that the time that Unforgiven came out was was, was uh, it's, a, it's it's important for the stature that it has because if you do look at '80s westerns outside of uh, Lonesome Dove on TV, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's a fucking it's awful. You know, I don't like Silverado. I apologize to the people that do. <laughs> um i'm not a big fan of Yo- the young guns films they're you know whatever they're fine um i
2: just remember after we saw young guns we went out and loaded up our shotguns to see if you could shoot a, a roll of dimes out of them and it would actually work it does not really fucking work not a, not the
1: yeah, way <laughs> yeah you don't want to do that uh but uh um uh so but so i think that i think that people's like memories had been like wiped about what even westerns were and the ones that they were seeing were you know dances with wolves came out the year before um so you kind of got these you know dances with wolves young guns silverado you got more um more lighthearted. i don't i don't say lighthearted, but lighter fair yeah. you know what i mean and yeah, so i think that's
2: I think is fair to say these are insubstantial movies in some way, you know, even dances with wolves, which is very self-serious. It's not a lighthearted film, but there's something sort of like gloss and silly about it.
0: But, but dances with wolves set the stage for unforgiven in a huge way to be like a film that, you know, is through the perspective of native Americans and, you know, does, does it right, you know, as it were, and then it becomes like this big prestigious Oscar winning thing. yeah you know now we're going to tell it the way it really was definitely sets up unforgiven for having that kind of reputation
1: yeah that's exactly that that was the point i was going to make is that 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 the prestige of dance with with dance with wolves i think was still Unforgiven comes in that sort of afterglow like you know oh yeah westerns can be serious and this is a serious one too you know so i think it it picks up that steam uh from dance with wolves but but if we look at the ones before that, the Western, the eighties Westerns are not Westerns that are really have anything on their mind, you know. Um, and even uh, Clint Eastwood's own Pale Rider, which I think is a t- terrible, terrible film. Um, so you, even Clint Eastwood himself, like if the last Clint Eastwood Western you saw is Pale Rider, where he's where he kicks you know Richard Keel in the balls and hits people, in the, you know it's like just just stupid comedy shit. Yeah, you'd watch Unforgiven and be like, oh, this is this is real heavy, serious shit now. So I think that is a, a big part of it is that uh, you know if you watch Unforgiven after seeing Dirty Little Billy, you might be like, ah, oh, fuck, man, <laughs> I've had enough of this for for a while, you know. So Eastwood
0: um, represented the spectral avenger in his westerns so often, you know, ever since The Man with No Name. He plays, you know, the avenging devil in uh, High Plains Drifter and the avenging angel and in, in Pale Rider. He's like this completely unrealistic figure where, you know, you don't think of it as being like, you don't even think about historical accuracy or things like that in these movies because you're kind of preoccupied with him just being this kind of comic book character in a Western setting. So, again, to have Unforgiven come out and be like, now he's old and he's coughing and he can barely and he can't stay on his horse. You know, it's Eastwood debunking Eastwood. You know, in an interesting way.
1: Yeah, and that's the other thing too that that uh, happens with Unforgiven is that you do. I mean, had Coppola made it at that time, who knows what you how that would have turned out? But let's say it's very similar. Um, I think it would still be because of Coppola's name would still be kind of this big event. But the fact that Clint Eastwood is the one that that gets the script and takes it over, it becomes absorbed into that, the Clint Eastwood persona. It becomes a movie that everyone thinks is designed as a commentary or an apology for Clint Eastwood's own work, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, it wasn't written for Clint Eastwood.
0: <laughs> uh, well, it's true. But another thing you pointed out in your thread was it's the same production designer as High Plains Drifter who made this movie, right? Yeah, well that's that, the thing. And that the, and that the production design of Unforgiven is incredible. Like everything looks amazing. They built a whole town, you know, to make this movie, whereas in High Plains Drifter he couldn't even be bothered to fucking paint the paint the set. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: yeah, and I and uh yeah, the production design of I you do get that with uh with the westerns that Clint Eastwood made. I think that one just because that was one of his early ones. And he was just trying to cut corners, and I just also think it was because I'm going to paint the town red. Why paint it the first time? Um, so, uh, <laughs> but uh, but like you know, the that guy I think had worked on. Uh, I, I think it was Unforgiven. He he was working with all the same people, same costume yeah. designer, same production designers, all the same people. He worked on everything. Well, else. Well, I agree. But... He's
0: it's early. He's cutting corners and everything. But I think at the same point, there's things in Unforgiven where it feels like he said this matters. Like it matters yeah, yeah. that you like make this look great and paint this and you know paint the set and make it look amazing. I think that there's that consideration. He's like this one matters and like gives that kind of emphasis to this production.
1: Yeah, well, I agree with that too. But I, I agree with I agree with that. Like on *Pell Rider*, the production design of that is also great too. It's just and so I think that he. He did want something that didn't look like a standard Western set, and it is, and it is, it looks great. It looks realistic. Um, and, uh,
2: uh Bill Daggett's house is fantastic. The little, what? Uh, uh, uh Lil Bill's house is fantastic. It's a fantastic piece of production design.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I agree with, I agree with, I agree with a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that I think that the production designer does a great does a great job. And I think that Clint would probably allow him to do his own devices. But I but I feel that um there's a there's a lot less thought and care put into other aspects of the production, the, the look of it. Um, you know, everyone if you look at the extras in the town, everyone is walking around, they're all cowboys, they're all walking around dressed like cowboys. What is this town, right? Uh it's a tad just a whole community of cowboys it's so it's there's like a,
2: there's a barber
1: yeah okay yeah but, <laughs> but that's but my point is like i'm joking with you what what when you see like little like when you see english bob it's like oh a guy in a suit you know it's like well every you know these are people they're not they're people in a town why wouldn't why would they be wearing you know why would they be dressed like cowboys at the same time they wouldn't be dressed like gene hackman but still so and there's just things where it's like um or even like the yeah his glad i mean the production design is great sorry i don't want to criticize
2: no no no. i think it's i think it's fair and i also always wonder with this whenever i watch eastwood's movies now as a filmmaker myself knowing that he likes to do only one take and he'll do a second take if somebody screws up a line and he'll do like a third take if there's some technical disaster i watch his movies and i see with the performances a lot of the time um in smaller roles in a lot of his movies, very bad performances. And why I think a lot of the reason Unforgiven works is that kind of, there's no other word for me for it, but laziness and sloppiness for doing that with the takes is he puts movie stars in every fucking role, major role. You know what I mean? So when it's Mm -hmm. like, if you got go from Gene Hackman to Harris, to Freeman, to Eastwood, you know, you're just handing the baton to real movie stars who are capable of carrying entire movies by themselves, you know. And so that stuff, this movie to me works um, because of that. But it's also surprising he gets really good performances from a lot of the smaller characters, like the woman who plays Delilah uh, or the guy who plays Beauchamp, Sal Rubinek In smaller roles, he gets better performances than is usual in Clint Eastwood movies. You know, a lot of those times, like the third lead, is like a super stinker, like in The Mule, the guy who's like the 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 main bad guy is like awful. It's like, you got to give him a few more takes. He can't remember his lines in some of these shots, you know? And I do think that that's what's surprising to me about Unforgiven when I watch it. A lot of Eastwood's movies do feel like they're made without care. They They feel like he's a professional who can come in and assemble something professional, but he's not going to obsess over any aspect of it. I think him as a filmmaker, a lot of the shots are very simple. When you talk about the shootout isn't as exciting as the shootout, like the opening of The Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah is going to craft and construct that scene so meticulously, know where the camera needs to be at certain moments, where to move it, where to point it, how to edit it, how to speed up rhythms and slow them down. Eastwood doesn't do any of that as a filmmaker. Eastwood puts the camera in the right spot and leaves it there. and maybe we'll pan and maybe we'll track in sometimes, you know. And I think that that when I watch Unforgiven, though, it strikes me is that somehow, this movie was made with more care than his movies normally feel like they're made with to me that this movie does feel like more big and epic and well put together than a lot of his stuff. But I, but I, but I also agree with what you're saying where it's like he, if you said, why are they all dressed like cowboys to them? I guarantee you he did not even think about that question once while making that movie. I get it did not even flit through his mind for 15 seconds. And the contrast being, we were just talking on the Quest for Our Fire episode we did with Tony Stella about like Kurosawa making Redbeard and having everybody live on set for a year before they started filming, because he wanted the town to feel like lived in, and he wanted the actors who were he was forcing to live in this town to sort of have roles and things to do in this little uh you know provincial you know uh historic town that's not something Eastwood's ever going to do he's going to be like get me some leather vests and cowboy hats and put them over there in the back of the shot and that's going to be the extent he thinks about it
0: I or, think. or maybe he and again going, uh, going back to your thread David where he we first meet William Money on the farm and he's wearing those period perfect pants with no belt buckle and yeah. you're like he looks perfect he could have been like, good enough. We did it once. We don't have to worry about every single character looking great. That'll take care of it.
2: Yeah. I just feel like he would never, based on his reputation, be like, we have to put the de- push the shoot back a day. The costumer's really unhappy with how Gene Hackman looks. You know what I mean? Like, that would never happen on one of his shoots. They just, that's no, not the kind of thing they would push a day for, you know?
1: I, I agree with that, and I do agree that Unforgiven has a feeling of more care to it than, than most than most of his films. Um, and that, and then, and the thing is that you know that's it's his strength and it's his weakness. His strength is that he's no nonsense, and so when he does get a great script like Unforgiven, he doesn't fuck around with it too much. He films it as it is. He lets it be what it is. Like you said, he populates it with great actors who carry it and and are able to elevate it um and uh and it's not like he just just slap dash here there's just certain things where it's like we're making a western just dress them like western guys right (laughs) he puts more effort into the town and everything but just do the western thing that you're gonna do um and uh but yeah all the smaller roles and everything are for the most part way better than usually in his films one just because why not? Is where where English Bob's on the train and the two guys are, are uh are talking to him, they do their little shooting with the birds. And we'll talk about that scene later because I think it's a microcosm for the entire movie. Let's but, talk about, uh, it, now. Talk about it,
2: now. Get it. Talk about it. Now. Let's go into...
1: No, because it's to be the it's gonna play into my whole point of the okay, movie. It's a climax. But those but those two guys that, that are challenging him are supposed to be these cowboys. They're they're dressed to cowboys, they are got the straps, they got their saddlebags, everything. One of them's obese, and one of them's like in his late sixties or something. It's like, what the f- what cowboys are these? It's clearly <laughs> I don't know if these are just local actors, if they're the if they were the fucking grips or I don't know. But it's just like, you know, dress them as something else. Why are they dressed like cowboys? It's just that type of stuff where you go, who are these guys? What is their story? It's that,
3: yeah. it's
1: that, that that type of stuff. Like, yeah, they're fine. Whatever. Who's going to even think about how old these guys are if they're doing ranch work? <laughs> yeah, well,
2: I'll tell you the group. That bothers, be the barber. The <laughs> group that bothers me is when they kill the first guy who gets falls under his horse and then is trying to crawl to the rocks. The rest of his gang are like L.A. models. That yes. I see that gang and I'm like, who the fuck are these guys? How- dare how dare I love Lachlan you monroe. put down lachman monroe, I love you Lachlan monroe. Just, love monroe. just seeing lachman monroe in a western
1: is like but it, but it that,
2: does feel is, like it, they got ricky schroeder for the rest of this group of cowpokes pokes here is,
1: is, is that guy you guys are talking about the one that was in that dead man on campus movie oh, or whatever yes yeah, Cliff, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. he's oh. the one who shouts you all right david boy <laughs> oh yeah yeah but, uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so so yeah, there there's definitely a lot, a lot more or care put into it and everything. And and once again, my complaints are a place that literally no one in the history of the world has probably ever had. So, yeah. but 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 oh, but in terms of Clint Eastwood, like yeah, he gets out of the way of the material. That is his asset, mm. and and he doesn't do these uh, unnecessary flourishes. He doesn't fuck things up in that way. And so yeah, that is his strength. On the other hand, yeah, you can kind of tell he's only done one take. Uh, you know and, are, and are, I,
2: the, are the rifles and guns the guns they say they are because there's a lot of talk about the peacemaker and the rifle type are they actually the right weapons did you notice
1: uh, for the most part they have a they have an incorrect rifle in some scenes and then they mentioned 30 30 shells and those mm-hmm. were not invented yet and that kind of kind of play into the gunfight at the end uh <laughs> in terms of authenticity because 30 30 shells are the first smokeless gunpowder shells and that's really more late 1880s or early 1890s that those come about and so that gunfight at the end um you know if you if you weren't using smokeless gunpowder shells like 30 30 shells uh you wouldn't see anything (laughs) so it's like a it's it's an anachronism in one sense but in another sense it's like yeah i guess they were using the correct bullets not that they were even thinking about that they were people just fucked it up but uh um but for the most part, yeah, it's you know the uh, those aspects are
2: nitpicky and i'm what I would never you know, do
1: they're, it. they're decent they're, it's not like it's uh it's it's not it's 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 one of the more authentic westerns yeah. i'd say you know uh but
2: I, uh I ask you this this all leads into what we sort of mentioned in the preamble, which is how Unforgiven was received. How was Unforgiven received? What was the critical response that you're sort of pushing back against in some way? This is all it comes out in ninety two. It's huge. It's a big hit. It's an Oscar winner. What's what what was its sort of instant cultural status?
1: Uh you know, I don't know. I I, I feel that I I think when it when it was very first released, I I think some people were a little confused or underwhelmed, didn't? Uh, and I maybe should have checked this, but didn't like one of them or at least both of them, like Siskel and Ebert, change their review? Weren't, didn't, they didn't they start negative and then oh, and yeah. then change it? Uh, so uh, so I I don't know if it was like immediately everyone obviously what's it Richard Shickle, you know probably <laughs> 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 broke his. <laughs> whatever but uh, uh yeah so but I, I don't know i don't know if it was like an immediate thing or if it kind of swelled up over that year until the academy awards cuz i don't know when it, it it was released in i think like what august of that year so so yeah i don't know i don't know if it was in, like right immediately but by the time of the academy awards it, it it had garnered this reputation um and it's the type of thing that people love it's a it's a it's a filmmaking icon who is now trying to be more you know do something more uh uh respectable and he's and he's playing with his image and all that i mean well it's funny to me because they, they love that shit
2: you you go back to it's seen as being like the the cab in some ways this was going to be the capstone of eastwood's career too where he looks back on all he's done and this is sort of one of his his final rides it was sort of seen as at the time which is funny to consider he goes up making moves for another 30 years <laughs> or whatever But it's funny to me, like, you go back as early as Heartbreak Ridge in 86, and he's playing the guy who's too old to do this anymore. (laughs) How for, like, it feels like almost a decade at this point, Eastwood has been playing the guy who's getting too old when he gets into Unforgiven, like his character at that point it's not even, it's not even fresh in terms of like Eastwood reflecting on being the old man who probably shouldn't be playing Dirty Harry anymore, you know? And so it's, it's funny even in terms of like Eastwood's own body of work, let alone the history of Westerns, how it's not groundbreaking in that way.
0: It's funny. I never put it together until David mentioned that Malkovich was considered for Unforgiven originally. Mm -hmm. Uh, His follow-up movie, In the Line of Fires, pits him against Malkovich. And in that (laughs) one, he's, the old, oh, the ancient uh, secret service officer who's called out of retirement to deal with the psychopath, he was still kind of, you just kind of riding that train for a while.
2: comes, I mean, And then you have all the films. Yeah. Blood work is about, oh, i got heart problems, can't be a cop anymore. Space cowboys, we're too old to be to be astronauts, you know. That's that's the only movie he makes for quite some time. And he still goes back to it. The Mule is like, can you believe how old I am? And now it's like, no, I can't. You're fucking 90 or whatever you are. I definitely can't believe <laughs> yeah. what I'm saying.
1: Uh, um, yeah, that's... Uh, 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 what was I oh, even... Oh, yeah. In, in the actual script itself, the character of William Money is is like in his 40s. Yeah. And it's... Cleese would famously like he found loved the script found it in the 80s and he's like I got to put this away until I can age into it. <laughs> but it's like, but it kind of goes to show. But he, I mean, it makes sense to a certain degree because it's like um, you know uh, movie old and re- like real old. You know what I mean? A guy in his 40s trying to be out out being a gunfighter and everything like that is actually crazy, right? Yeah. But uh, when you watch like that in a movie. You you know it just you just go along with it because you don't no one wants to see a bunch of eighteen year olds shooting each other yeah in the face which is really what the whole was for a lot of it you know <laughs> all, all the all the gunfighters either like died by by their mid thirties you know or did everything when they were in their twenties you know so um, but uh, but yeah it's just funny like unless they're cool young probably, was, probably <laughs> was older than the character when he got the script. But said, I still need to age into this a decade. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: to age in Clint years.
1: Yes, but uh, um, uh, I haven't I haven't consulted my notes yet at all. I guess I probably didn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> but uh
0: yeah. well, let me throw this out at you because this is something I noticed watching the movie, specifically with your thread in my in my mind, and I don't know when I'm going to be able to bring this up, but. But I was thinking about like, you know, this movie avoiding cliches and avoiding, you know, the kind of what everyone thinks of as a western, which again, as you said, was not really what like good westerns are. They're not like white hat, black hat, and you don't see people shooting people outside of frame, you know, things like that. Um, but Unforgiven has one moment that with that in mind, I couldn't believe it was there. It's the part where they first come into big whiskey. And uh, the kid and Ned go upstairs to get advances on their payment, and they leave Will down there in the saloon, and little Bill's men come in. It's at that moment, right, where everyone who sees little Bill coming in slowly gets up from their table and gets away from where Clint Eastwood is sitting. This is the classic Western thing of, you know, two gunmen looking at each other across a room, everyone... You hear that scooching of the chairs as they get up and they have their drinks awkwardly in their hand and they, the extras just move out of the way to let the gun fight play. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that's in this movie. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, uh, I don't want to jump the gun because that is the plan. I don't want to. I have a design to what I'm doing here. Um, But no, you're right. The, I am going to get into the way the movie actually does engage and play with genre tropes and all that stuff. When I give my full assessment of it, I don't know if we should just get into the race stuff now just to get it out of the way. Oh (laughs) yeah, definitely. That's something you had mentioned doing
0: on the thread that yeah. I wanted to hear about
2: that. You were sort of afraid to touch, which is reasonable. That's also something as a kid that when I watched it, I was like, well, I guess they just put Morgan Freeman in this role and weren't going to worry about like, you know, my sort of childish visions of, of what life for black people in olden times was like that, you know, he wouldn't have been allowed to walk into a white saloon kind of thing, you know, uh, was my reaction as a teenager. But what is what like the racial aspect of these movies that you were maybe um, hesitant to address on Twitter, the worst form for any of that kind of thing? What did you have to say about him?
1: Yeah, well, you sound like a very smart kid because you were right uh because so so here's the thing all right this is (laughs) i don't know why i'm talking who who you know who wants to analyze an old western uh in a a, through some kind of racial lens this especially now maybe maybe five years ago (laughs) but anyway i'm gonna do it anyway and and i think i I don't know yeah i don't know even who's going to be on my side on this right even if i have a side So, but my thing is, so Unforgiven, at least I believe, wears on its sleeve this idea that it is a corrective. Uh, It's showing you this is what the West, this is what the frontier was like. This is, you know, this is what gunfighters were really like. This is what lawmen were really like. You know, this is what killing was actually like.
2: Yeah, Um, not very uh, explicitly, but the Beauchamp character is there to drive this home. He's not the duck of death. You know, that's all bullshit. Let me tell you the real thing. That movie very explicitly says all of those old stories you heard about Westerns. They were all lies. That's that's the essence of this movie. Sorry, but on.
1: Yeah, so so that's that's fine. Um, now, uh, now the character of Ned played by Morgan Freeman in the script, the character of Ned is not black. Um. Uh. and so Clint Eastwood just decided to cast Morgan Freeman he's great in the role I would never say not to cast him he's great in the role in a lot of ways because this side character who you know wants to visit whores and wants to talk about masturbation and stuff mm. you give that to Morgan Freeman he already has so much dignity to him that it's like a, just an interesting nuance whereas a different actor might have played that as like sleazy you know, like the old—he wants to go visit the horrors. They keep taking, yeah. they keep keeping advances uh, on their...
2: Tom Sizemore you know. in that role—it's a very different character.
1: Exactly. When you give that to Morgan Freeman, it's like, oh, that's interesting. Like, yeah, that's yeah. she's an interesting character now, right? Um. So that's you know, and that's cool, and 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 uh, obviously, westerns have not represented how many black people were actually in the West. Uh, and so it's cool to to include that. And, you know, and then there are these things, they come from the script. Uh, and remember, he was not a black character in the script, but they still work. So he has this Indian wife. And you go, okay, so these two, these are people that are probably on the fringes of society, you know. Um, also, then was, when the kid
2: seems is- to like, have, um, Is it explained in the script? He seems to have taken her last name. His name is now something like, uh, what's ned's last name it sounds very indigenous it doesn't sound like a like a like a, a black oh, oh,
1: something uh something tree something yeah or i can't remember
2: now hold on i'll look up real quick so we don't say
1: i, I don't know I, I don't remember
2: hold on i don't name? remember his last name Isn't is he
0: it's logan? weird because on wikipedia they're saying ned logan but you're right they call him Maybe is it because he tells them his Ned name two is?
1: Trees. Oh, he lies. He lies. His name oh, is yeah. Ned, yeah. Ned Logan. But he lies. at something
2: two trees. Something tree. Ned two trees. Tree? Or... Ned two trees anyway,
1: but, but yeah, okay. Yeah, because that's his. That's what he said. Yeah, that is his wife's last. That he was just thinking of his wife's name in the moment. I think. Okay. I I I would have to watch those scenes. I did not rewatch the movie for this. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so so that's cool. But then you but then you get the the Schofield kid character who's trying to enlist William Money, and when he finds out Ned's going along, he's not happy about it. And he would be the same with the white character, still written the same as if he's white. But the way he says you're going with him, you know, has a little bit of a racist stink to it because he doesn't know Ned. So it, it, the the way it was written would probably be like, so you're going with him, as opposed to you're going with him, right? Yeah. So there's little hints there, right? That there's maybe some acknowledgement, but it's all from the script and it's all there and it would be happening to a white character. By the time we get to them going into a saloon, and Ned goes into a white saloon, goes to sleep with a white prostitutes, that would not happen. I mean, there are every time I bring this up, someone will find some kind of historical footnote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it will be like, you know stage coach mary was this was this black woman who was allowed to go into white saloons being mm-hmm. a black woman that those are two things that were not allowed there's a reason they reported that because it never happened yeah. or when you hear about some black cowboys who so would shoot up the whites only signs in saloons and stuff because there were whites only signs in saloons when you hear yeah. the stories about black people going saloons at the time that's reported because it never happened people mm-hmm. are like this is crazy because <laughs> it's like in history
3: right? yeah
1: yeah um so 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 that part of it is like okay that's that's inaccurate that's 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 wrong and it's a little inconsistent for a movie that seems to be presenting itself as a more uh accurate nuanced portrayal of the west um having said that i'm not saying recast the character having said that i'm not saying throw some racial slurs in there we don't want to hear that you know we don't need that the movie's not about that uh we don't yeah and and so we'll get in well let's just talk about the accuracy first before we get into that stuff (laughs) so just on an accuracy or or just in terms of the storytelling level i think that you could have easily just had ned waiting outside yeah or just have everyone looking at him suspiciously and that's part of the reason they get caught you could do this and hint at it without banking the movie into something to you know tackling this topic of race when it's not about that right yeah um so that would be my the simplest solution for me i don't want him to be cast with somebody else or any of that type of stuff and okay they got that part wrong and it's inconsistent with other things okay maybe that's a little bit of a flaw whatever but it's colorblind casting and knowing clint eastwood as kind of a guy who maybe isn't the most detail oriented he said let's cast morgan freeman let's not do anything else to rewrite anything else in the script. That was my initial assumption. Right.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, uh, now later on, it's even funny when they're trying to identify the killers, they're describing them. They do not describe Ned as black. Like they didn't <laughs> even bother to rewrite that line. Whoa. The one whoa, guy. Whoa, the one whoa, guy
2: whoa, whoa. They are not racist. No, I'm just kidding.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so all that, whatever the movie made a mistake. Fine. Um, uh, it's more forgivable if I'm watching El Condor or whatever, uh, some kind of uh, exploitation type black western. You know, uh, I'm not going to name the Fred Williamson westerns because I can't. They've <laughs> in <laughs> <laughs> the titles. I can't say, but uh, um, but uh, so okay. So that's a little inconsistency. Whatever, maybe a little bit of a flaw. Clint Eastwood maybe wasn't thinking. But here's the problem. The movie then later takes the character of Ned, he gets captured, he gets whipped to death. So it's like, all right, we don't want to hear racial slurs. And I'm not black, so obviously I can't be the person that speaks to this. But what is more triggering, hearing that or literally seeing the image of a black guy being whipped to death, right? Yeah. So, so, so there's that. And then so there's all this uncomfortable racist imagery that is now in the movie. Yeah. And it's like, we haven't been acknowledging this at all. And the movie still is not necessarily even acknowledging it. He's killing him for being an assassin. He's not killing him for being black. But any person that's not a fucking moron cannot watch that scene and not be like, they're whipping a black guy to death. Right? Yeah. So so that's an issue. And and once again, we can't give Cleanser the benefit of the doubt here that he just was this stupid. Because yeah. he literally told uh, Gene Hackman to base his character off of Daryl Gates, the head of the Ugh. LAPD. L.A. riots during the beating of Rodney King. Gene Hackman told Richard Shickle when they were filming the scenes where they were beating them to death, this is my Rodney King scene. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So, so, this is a movie that now is not... It's giving you this picture of uh, of... It's like... It's like Tronjer's racist. It's like, is he racist or is he not? Is he killing because he's an assassin, or is he killing, him or is he going over because he's black or whatever? And it's like, if you want to read it, you can. If you don't, you can't. You don't have to. And maybe for some people, that's complexity. To me, that's muddled. It's, it's inconsistent.
3: Incoherent. Yeah,
1: it's incoherent. And the other thing that it does, and uh, and and when, when I, and, and I'm harping on this stuff. This is not stuff that I think ruins the movie. Yeah. I want people, this is like, this is the thing that I just don't think anyone talks about. It's it's I don't definitely
0: know I weird. It. It's definitely weird. I remember yeah. reading a contemporary review of it back in the day that said, it's absurd that no one mentions Morgan Freeman's race in this movie. And I, I get it. And I'm thinking about like early 90s movies in general, like their attitude toward it. The movie Sneakers has Sidney Poitier's character, you know, hanging with the rest of the cast. And then he has like a, there's like a minor villain at the end throws out like a mild racist you know name at him, like moonlight or something like that
2: but what's you know, weird uh, is it's for the, the wrong race he could he calls him you know like a slur for an asian guy that's the strange part about that scene in sneakers
0: okay uh but joking John, point, that's
1: not what happens at all
0: right, But point is uh, nothing's it,
1: worse than racism right i mean if you're gonna be racist <laughs> at least get your targets right
0: get your racism right um, but you know, the idea is to distinguish between the good guy and the bad guys, right? Obviously, the bad guys are going to be racist and the good guys aren't in Unforgiven. It has to make a very delicate case against Little Bill versus Will Money. We're here, we're told all the, the, throughout the movie, Money is like a mean, cold blooded son of a bitch killer, and you know, we have but we have to accept him as like our hero who we're going to be rooting for, and Little Bill, even though he is the law he's the lawman. and he's the person who supposedly supposedly keeping you know uh, uh his town peaceful and and and, and acting justice we have to see him as the bad guy so to have Clint would have a black friend you know that he's hanging out with and to have gene hackman's character being the one who whips whips him that's just a way to like to distinguish those two personalities so that i think is a flaw in the film because it's a very lazy and very kind of underhanded way to like work, work his race into the narrative without directly, you know, addressing it in in any significant way. It's, it's having the cake and eating it too.
3: Yeah. Well, that's yeah, Yeah.
2: it's, it's meeting the movie on the terms it's set for itself, right? It, It fails sort of its own terms. And that's why when I, love this movie. And I really do love this movie as even as we're nitpicking it. The terms it sets for itself is first what what you're saying with him not being able to go in saloon. It's this is the really real shit. This is not Duke of Death. This is the real story. And it fails on that. I think it's obvious to most people. I don't think I was a smart kid. I just think, you know, like, you know, when I'm watching this movie a couple decades before, they still had, you know, whites only water fountains in the US he's just going to walk into all white spaces you know like that doesn't seem realistic to me and you know i know that there's points in history in which that stuff american history is much cloudier in instances where uh, society wasn't as segregated as we necessarily imagine it was at certain points in time and so you hope oh well maybe that's a comment on it you know when i'm a kid you're thinking maybe that's a comment to hear from you now like no that's absolutely not the case is interesting but then also the other well, term that it that it sets oh, is, is what John's saying of like, it, Gene Hackman's character is not a villain. That's the first moment where I feel like he's a villain and it's amping it up because you want to see him shot. You know what I mean? Like it's it's actually juicing it in a way that undermines it where he belongs to sort of a tradition of larger than life, outlaw or not outlaw, eccentric lawmen, autocratic planes, you know, sort of, of, of law bringers you know, that are that are sometimes seen as being a civilizing force and a force of moral good in the world. And he's playing that character when he becomes, you know, Daryl Gates, wh- whipping Rodney King to death. It, it's OK. Can't wait to see him get his, you know, and then he makes- and
0: his posse are celebrating the death afterwards.
2: Yeah. You, too. Can't, you, can't, you can't And make it's
0: Morgan a- Freeman. It's yeah. Morgan Freeman, you know, yeah. who's in yeah. glory yeah. and driving Miss Daisy historical yeah. tales of prejudice yes,
1: um yeah, well you you guys uh uh, yeah, you guys are making the same points that I was yeah. that I was gonna make too, uh um about uh, about that because it's like before I just wanted to kind of give it the benefit of the Da claims, which just didn't it was just one of those careless things, but knowing that he was aware of it, it's like, well, you know why, why not just why not figure out a different thing? you don't have to change that earlier scene that much. Ned could be waiting by the horses. We get it, uh, and yeah. we don't have to then suddenly hear a bunch of n words or anything like that. You know, yeah. Uh, but 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 you are but you're right in terms of what it does, what it does to the character of Little Bill. And this is something that David Peoples has talked about, and he's happy with the movie. He couldn't be, uh, you know, as someone who's had, uh, uh, uh not I'm not talking about myself, but him being someone who's had screenplays produced, he knows how they get mangled and torn up so so the fact that unforgiven retains anything of that he's going to be overjoyed but he's mentioned yeah i didn't write the character as black someone asked him in an interview uh and and he said uh you know i wish i would because margaret freedom was so good in it but if i had written it i would have called him black Ned because everyone has those types of names little bill they'd they'd probably call him black Ned. but he does mention he says but i will say that that the character what it does to the character of Little Bill is that it does take away depth and nuance, it does take away a certain amount of uh, sympath- sympathy that you have for him and and he's mentioned that too because he said I, when I was writing Little Bill, this is his quote I really started to like him I I didn't want to see him go you know and he's, oh, there, he's and, and... Palmer,
2: and it's Hackman so much too. You put a movie star like Hackman in that role and you give him laugh lines and physical comedy and and scariness. It's just such a great you love that character. You know, he's to me. I mentioned Milius area. He's like such a millius character that 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 one to me, you know, at any time, any
0: anytime any of the deputies are like, go get little Bill, you know, we need little Bill. <laughs> you get like why they rely on him so much because he really has that like level of authority and and charisma that everyone kind of like looks up to him and thinks he's going to be the one to solve all the problems.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, and 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 it, just the character of Little Bill is a character that could very easily, at least in the script form, be the hero. Yeah, because like I've said, we've seen the we all love the stories. Clint Eastwood has made a million of them. About the lawman who's trying to t- keep things under control, and has to go outside of the law. He- he's very much similar to the character of Dad Longworth from One Eye Jacks, which was also a character that got that started out as a more, uh, you know, nuanced uh, antagonist that you understood, you know, that you were sympathetic to. Uh, that maybe overstepped the line, but you going are... down
0: the thread, I was like, he's not going to get Little Bill, whatever he points out. Little Bill is like that movie's original thing, and then you point out One-Eye Jacks. So I was like, "Damn it, you're right. You're 100 <laughs> yeah, like,
1: right." Exact visuals from it too, um, but uh, uh, so so, but yeah, but and and David Webb Peoples, like once once he beats a once he beats a black guy to death, you can't. It's and, and yeah, I understand. Him beating anyone to death, you should lose sympathy for him. I get that, right? But. But uh, it's not like Ned is really that, I mean, he's not that much worse than than English Bob. I mean, he's reformed and everything, but he's still a murderer. He's still, you know what I mean? He's still a killer. He's not, uh, uh, so the fact that it's Morgan Freeman makes him more sympathetic and everything. But the point is, if if it was a Tom Sizemore who got beat to death, then you we probably still would be on. I mean, the rest of he's done stuff. So I was going to say him, some other character actor who gets beat beat to death. Uh you probably <laughs> would Levine. still something on, yeah, yeah, somewhat on on uh, on on Little Bill's side. But yeah, you can't
0: well you and can't, and the fact that he can't go through with the assassination. I mean, that's the one thing where money keeps saying Ned didn't do anything, you know, like you you killed Ned, he didn't do anything. Kind of makes it go for an interesting kind of thing with the theme is that you know, yeah, he didn't do anything now, you know, but his whole life he's lived by the gun, uh, you know. Again, are if you reformed, like, are you now, are you forgiven, are you unforgiven? I think is what they want to say with that. But
3: then
2: one other thing, just thinking about it too, this just popped into my head where you're talking about they're supposed to be younger in the script. It's a funny thing too, making them older if they're in their early 40s and they're trying to be farmers and it sucks and they're not going to. Doing a good job. So they got to get money. That makes more sense if they've only hung it up for like five years. If you're 55 or 60, well, you've been a farmer for 15 or 20 years at this point. Like you're actually a farmer, you know? And so the urgency, the like disrupting of their lives plays in a different way. It feels more like, oh no, you're leaving your life behind. And you saying this just now, it's sort of like seeping in my head, like it, it. it doesn't feel like they're leaving something precarious because they need the money. It feels more like, well, why, you know, why are you guys leaving this, this life behind, you know, especially Morgan yeah. Freeman's character, like he's got much less of a reason to do it. And it feels a little more like movie cliche, like he's going, cause he's got his partner that he's loyal to, and he's going to do it, you know, no matter what, which is, you know, the stuff of, of, of rolling thunder not you know what i mean not true stories of the old west kind of thing
1: yeah well the thing that it, i mean the, the thing that it does and, and like i said that like this i, I always want to you know temper this with the fact that i don't think this makes the movie stop working or no. i don't think it ruins the movie or whatever or you know there's certain things just that they have certain themes and stuff that are in the script either you know, once it once it's adapted, you can't you can't carry everything over. But it, I do think it's unfortunate what it does, you know, to the character to the character of, of Little Bill, um, and and also just I forgot what my point was going to be. <laughs> <laughs>
2: like, uh, I uh, think uh, all of it making it older and making it Morgan Freeman makes that character less believable and thinner to me. It just becomes Morgan Freeman when you think about it. I don't think, and it plays really well. And I think Morgan Freeman is actually sympathetic when he can't shoot the guy. If it's if it is Barry Pepper or Tom Sizemore, right and they're afraid to kill the guy you're like that yellow fucking coward let will money down if it's morgan freeman you're like oh man it's all good hang it up you know like it's it's a funny thing if you picture it in the 70s who would have been playing it in series if it's if it's david carradine you know what i mean who can't take the shot it has a very different feel than morgan freeman who is sort of the has always been cast as the human embodiment of forthrightness and uprightness and sort of Sensible dependability, you know, and if you cast somebody who makes it a little sleazy or oilier or more human, then it then there's something. Um, uh, the, the patheticness of the moment is less touching than it is in the current version, you know what I mean? This yeah. movie has a, a kind of huge sentimentality to it. Watching it this time, I was thinking at the ending, you know, with those bookends, um, with the the title crawl, the on screen, uh, text to bookend it is like how much this movie is a love story you know in which the woman isn't in the story you know the object of the love isn't there it's about how he's transformed by the love and what the love means to him as a new person and it and it leans into sentimentality in this movie in a way that like um if you compare it to to even like a not even wild bunch you know what I mean? Or or a peck and paw thing, but um, but a no-nonsense western like the like Northfield, Minnesota raid, right? How much more sentimental it is than than the 70s westerns that it's that it's birthed at the same time as, you know, that it's it's it is a fundamentally romantic movie. You know what I mean? And his big his big romance scene is when he refuses to sleep with the prostitute. It's a funny scene like you know that's such a romantic scene even though the woman isn't there you know turning down the other woman is so romantic that she can't help but swoon and you know and i swoon watching that you know kind of although
0: when she later finds out that his wife is dead (laughs) i can't help thinking that she's like oh that was just an excuse he really does think i'm ugly
1: (laughs) yeah well that's a good point too about 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 the romance because because uh I do think that that is a quality that Clint Eastwood does bring to it the yeah. not, not not the sentimentality because it's obviously there in the script, but I feel that a different director could have uh, focused on more of the harsher elements, yeah. you know, Clint Eastwood definitely classes it up with it with titling it Unforgiven with his score with it, you know, uh, the, the score does a lot of heavy lifting. I mean, yeah. Uh, to give it that 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 feel i mean I, I mean imagine if someone was trying to do a morricone riff or something on it yeah. you know it would just it would be a fucking nightmare but you could read the script and go yeah you know yeah. we look at some spaghetti western music on this thing or, or let's get something badass so but so that is a good point that
2: also another thing about eastwood uh, with with his directing of it it's it's in no hurry to get there. And the script is so tight. It's such a well-conceived narrative and has so much narrative momentum that Eastwood has the courage to waste a lot of time to just have them mosey in and hanging out. You know, it's a script that's about people going someplace and then w- waiting to get there. And then, you know, he's got his flu, so he can't get out of bed. You know, it's a movie that, that has um, a lot of, It really takes its time to get between various points, but the narrative engine has been so well built and is so well goosed by the script that that it works, that it plays. It doesn't play like a slow movie at all. It plays like a fast-paced movie, but it really moseys, and I think that's Eastwood. I think that Eastwood knows the script is tight enough that he doesn't have to be in a hurry to get there and do the like... You know, because I just also this week watched the Sam Raimi Gene Hackman Western Quick and the Dead, where like send the camera flying down from cathedral tops and through bullet holes and flip 180, like and just keep it going like the no as little um, narrative fat as possible in that movie. That movie has a lot of aesthetic fat, but no narrative fat. It's trying to get from scene to scene to scene as fast as possible. And this movie doesn't do that. This movie like takes its sweet ass time. It's two hours and 10 minutes and it doesn't play long. You don't feel like I always, I usually think two hours and 15 minutes is the kiss of death for a movie running time. You know, that it's that your movie is either a 90 minute movie like it should be, or it's a three hour movie. But if it's at 2.15, you couldn't figure out how to make it into an hour to 90 minutes. And you also were afraid to let it be three hours and have the time aspect of it be oppressive. But this is like a perfectly paced two hour and 10 minute movie, which is like a miracle.
0: And it's, a, and it's a pacing, too, that makes like important moments effective. Like the first cowboy that they shoot who gets pinned under his horse. Yeah. And you're like, oh, wait, oh, now they're on it. Now they're actually <laughs> doing it. They're like going through with it. It's
2: like, you're like oh, I'm in it. I'm in. I'm into it. <laughs> and that scene so much of that scene is them just sitting there doing nothing and this It's my the favorite scene in the going, movie. Did you do it? What why aren't you going to do it? Is he done? You know, and it really emphasizes like he's asking what the audience is of like why is what why is it not fucking happening? Why aren't we not going? And it's and it's a tension it builds.
0: Yeah, between that and Ned, you know, not wanting to kill finish the guy off and the guy slowly dying and and that great moment where he shouts, "Get the kid some water! You're not going to shoot. Yeah. We're not going to shoot. Get him some water!" You know this like this interchange between these rivals who are trying to kill each other. That scene is just fantastic.
1: Yeah, yeah. So just a, just the a last thing about um, the tackling of race in in the film. Um, you know, uh, outside of it, there's a disappointing element because it suddenly starts to feel like. It becomes a, it becomes like one of those dirty Harry movies where he's like teamed up with like a minority partner that he has to avenge or something. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, so now we're just in regular Clint Eastwood territory. You know, he has to become the white aven- avenger for the black guy who gets killed. This was an issue that Alex Cox had had at the time, and you know, not, he doesn't have the most nuanced take. But you know, he was tired of movies at that time, just one after the other, the black you know, supporting character has to get killed so the white character can avenge them, you know? So that's that's kind of an unfortunate aspect that happens with the movie. The other thing, too, is just that um, for Unforgiven not to acknowledge race almost in any way outside of just, you know, these whipping scenes is especially egregious when you consider that even the popcorn westerns of the 80s, like Young Guns, like Silverado, uh, acknowledge it. Danny Glover cannot get a drink in a saloon mm-hmm. in Silverado. In Young Guns, the, the main character, Billy the Kid, Emilio Estevez, the guy who we're supposed to like, it's, you know, uh says insulting things to, to his native friend. Uh, you know, he keeps, you know, he keeps, I guess you're a Navajo, you're not going to be loyal or whatever, whatever he says. Yeah. But that's our main character, then we're acknowledging the racism. Lonesome Dove, which is obviously not a popcorn mm-hmm. type of Western, but Gus, the, you know, everyone's. Grandpa Western character, everyone's favorite, warm,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, grandfatherly Western character, opens it up by saying, you know, when he talks about Lincoln freeing the slaves, he goes, "Well, they weren't Americans; they were Africans," you know. So it's like, even these '80s westerns, even though, even you know, that even with Lonesome Dove being a grittier, more realistic take, still has this character we're supposed to love, right? And it still acknowledges the the racism there. So for Unforgiven to not do that, I mean. It's like even even the ones that even the shitty popcorn westerns everyone considers fake do a better job with that aspect of it, so I just wanted to bring that as, that part up. We could stop talking about the race stuff. If no one
2: <laughs> I really know it's, love it, it. it's interesting or your personal feelings on race is what I'd like to focus on now. No, I'm just okay, going
3: all right so you got a couple <laughs> more hours now,
2: <laughs> so David um, it's I'll... kind of
0: staring towards the meat and bones of this thing. Let me just ask you something that doesn't come up in your thread, but I feel like you would probably have an authority on. The, what was the first legendary cowboy past his prime, diminishing in the dying days of the West story? In my unenlightened mind, it's always been ride the high country. It's probably just the best one, right? Probably not the first one, I'm guessing.
3: Oh, shit.
2: <clears throat> in all of the, the ran on westerns he's randolph scott is like too old in all of those he's like he's like hanging yeah. it up
1: that's hard to say i would i would i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to nail it down to anything in particular but i think ride the high country is definitely a big a big one in that regard Um yeah ride the high country now there's a there's a episode of the westerner the peck and paul show the westerner which is like a dry run for ride the high country but it was directed by i think andre detaugh and that is you know this fam there's a feud or i don't remember but there's an old patriarch he's supposed to be in his 80s the guy's clearly not that old and that's ridiculous age to have the guy anyway. But he goes with his sons to fight in this feud, you know, and it's basically the ending of Ride the High Country. And and it's a dry run for that. So I want want to credit Peckinpah and and Ride the High Country was not like it was a movie that made big waves in the genre at the time. I think it retroactively did that after the Wild Bunch. So I don't know. I would have to I would have to think about that. And I'm always leery of.
0: It's it's definitely influential. I mean, the line the famous line, The Shootest, I will not be laid a hand on, I will not be wronged, I will not stand for an insult. It sounds to me like I will I all I want is to enter my house justified. you know, uh Judd saying that line in Ride right, Thy Country yeah. they have a similar philosophy of like how they live their life in this uh rugged frontier.
1: Yeah, well, I had I, I did speak years ago briefly to Miles Swarthout, who was the son of Glendon Swarthout, and he was the screenwriter for the shooters um but and he did he did tell me that that you know the the westerns of pegan paw ride the high country and the wild bunch were influences on the shooters and uh, and i think you can see that the long not only just the themes but just its portrayal of violence <laughs> you know um yeah and 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 that's one of the funny things too because david webb peoples was not a fan of pegan was not a fan of the way he portrayed violence but uh whether it be the Shootist or something like the Cole Pepper Cattle Company, which counts as an influence or whatever, he's maybe not influenced by by Paw's westerns. Maybe the scale of the violence is too much for him. I don't know, but uh, he's definitely but shooting influenced. Somebody
0: by... in the rectum seems very to me.
1: <laughs> well, well, pe- people seem to be very influenced by the Peckinpah rip-offs. Is all I'm saying is that maybe he didn't like he didn't like the source, but he was, but he loved. Culpepper Pepper Cattle Company, which is a total, you know, it's it, it 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 pretends like it's Red River, but it decides to become the Wild Lunch at the end, and it's full of, you know, it's it has the biggest body count of any cattle drive in the history of the West, you know. <laughs> so, um, but uh, uh so yeah, I, I I don't know, I'm not I'm not sure, but but that is something that starts to crop up, especially um, a, after Ride the High Country, and and I would. Think I'm sure in literature there's something I'm not an expert on literature like at Western literature, uh, the Western canon, but uh, uh, um, I'm sure there's something there. But I think pre ride the high country um there probably wasn't a lot of actors who wanted to be like i'm old (laughs) i'm old and crusty you know it's like you're you're getting gary cooper in man of the west you know and he's older than the guy playing his dad you know so (laughs) i think for a long time they didn't want to acknowledge the, the age of their stars so um i wouldn't want to give ride the high country the credit but it's yeah it's probably it's the one that comes to mind
0: that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're hitting in the 60s and you are having these classic movie stars hitting that age where they can only play older characters, that's interesting that that's when this thing becomes an actual...
1: Not a big in the Money Shot Liberty balance.
0: But people, yeah, <laughs> well, people still say, you know, even Clint Eastwood is still saying, I'll wait 10 years until I'm 60 to play a 40-year-old. <laughs>
1: you know? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Young schoolboy Jimmy Stewart, too. Uh, uh, but, uh, oh, and, and that, that, too, also... Bandages Out Liberty Valance has a scene where Woody Strode tries to get a drink in a saloon and John John yeah. Wayne has to basically bully the bartender. I mean, we've been acknowledging this shit for a long fucking time, Clint Eastwood. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, yeah, so the movie itself. Uh, John, do you guys I, want I talk-
2: thought you were going <laughs> to give a serve up question to that. Didn't we talk about that?
1: What? That was the serve was the servo.
0: Oh,
2: that, that was <laughs> okay. that's I'm gonna call that a fault, John. You wanna come up with another one real quick?
1: <laughs> well, let, here, I guess maybe the way I I, I might I'll lead into it is what I was talking about is that scene on the train with English Bob and the two guys who you know, one of them knows who he is and one of them isn't, and he's talking loose, right? Um and I said that's a microcosm of the whole movie, right? Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, number one, that scene is so old hat for Westerns. The scene where a guy's talking tough and he doesn't realize he's talking to the greatest gunfighter or whatever.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, and someone has to be like, you're talking to the, you know, whatever, the Smith and Western boy or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That's in every fucking Western, ever. This The cliche of like the guy who's talking loose around uh, uh, a gunfighter, he doesn't realize this guy's a gunfighter and someone has to tell him was such a cliche in the Western genre that by the 40s, when they made Along Came Jones uh, with Gary Cooper, they have a scene that parodies that yeah. where a guy thinks Gary Cooper is a gunfighter and another guy's like, that's a gunfighter. He gets scared and he, goes, and he runs off and Gary Cooper is not, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it was our, that's like so old hat. And I think that gave away people's not being an aficionado of Westerns, uh, uh, I think that's why it shows up. Someone who would wouldn't put that there. Unless they were specifically it, trying to do it, so
0: oh much. That in itself became a comic cliche. And like movies like Hot Blood and Cold Feet, you know, everyone thinks that this guy's a scary gunman and he's just some dude.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. So, but the way that, that I say that that is a microcosm of the whole movie is because um, whether or not Clint Eastwood is aware of it, whether or not David Webb Peebles is aware of it, uh, the critics definitely don't seem to be aware of it is that the is one it it it's it that, that the whole movie is structured like that see and it falls into that category whether it's a kung fu movie or anything else of the of this guy who's trying to be peaceful he's got a violent past people keep fucking with him and they don't know who they're fucking with mm. and you just keep waiting and you keep waiting and the more they fuck with him you go, oh my god, when he finally gets his revenge, it's going to be so sweet. That's Unforgiven. Yeah, Unforgiven is that movie. It has the same structure of a Kung Fu movie. It has the same structure of a million other fucking westerns. It has the same structure uh, 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 thematically of yeah, the pacifist. They fuck mm-hmm. with the pacifist. They go too far. He has to fuck them up. They don't know yeah. his past.
2: You don't want to push You're that, that one to farmer that. too far. What? You don't want to push that melon farmer too far that's that's charles bronson that's mr majestic you're pushing he just wants
1: yes, to. yes exactly. and, and the sweetness of it that you watch you watch it and you go god damn i fucking know yes. if you watch this movie with john malkovich you might just be like what oh, okay okay and then when you he finally kills him maybe it would be even more exciting but you watch it with with clint eastwood especially probably when it came out you're like what the fuck what the fuck is this a you know what i mean what is he doing what is he doing um, and, 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 and your average, like, dirty little Billy-esque 70s western, he wouldn't, you wouldn't get that, that yeah. cathartic action movie ending, that Clint Eastwood ending that you want, you know, and it's like, even on rewatches, it gets sweeter when they're fucking with him, because you know, they don't realize, that's the whole fucking movie, and, and the thing about Unforgiven, and the reason why I think it works, um, um, in a way that I don't think the filmmakers intended, or uh, the critics that talk about it, the reason it works is the same reason that the Peckinpah films work. It's the same reason Shane works. It's the same reason that the Leone films work. Uh, it, even though David Peoples is not someone who loves the genre or is an expert of the genre, he's somebody who. Saw these aspects of the genre, whether the, the, the tropes or whatever, whether he was aware they were tropes, whether he thought he was breaking new ground. He took it seriously. He, he looked at it and said, what would this actually be like? And when I talk about, like, the Wild Bunch, it's not authentic portrayal of the West. But what it is is the types of Westerns you see, the good men who sacrifice themselves for a bit greater cause. You know, what would that actually look like? What would it look like if you took these movie gunfighters and threw them with a machine gun with a bunch of Mexican federalities? What 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 would that, uh, what would that look like? Not even just visually, but what is that story? Who are these people, right?
3: Yeah.
1: So this is someone who's taking a tired, well-worn story, cliche, and going, what? How how would we make this real? And Unforgiven, maybe the intention was westerns are bullshit. Let's show that they are. But like you said, in the end he still has the big saloon thing. It still is the Virginian. It's still Shane. It's still a man's got to do what a man's got to do, right. Yeah. So uh um, and- in the end
0: he still shows up on a rainy night. no one sees him come in. he's standing there with the gun. you hear the sound of his spurs like hitting the the, the as he's slowly walking that slow thing. he becomes the Clint Eastwood mythological specter, you know, Avenger that he always was in that scene.
3: The guy exactly, uh,
2: who shoots a bunch of anonymous characters without names, effortlessly kills them all and doesn't take a bullet himself and isn't even in danger of it, you know? Like that that sort of like Hollywood ending of like, those guys are fodder. The people he shoots, David Webb Peoples can say he doesn't like violence in, in, in films or in Westerns, However much he wants, you know, if if William Money in his script is walking into that saloon and shooting five guys with no names that we've never seen before, that is done to create an enjoyment and catharsis and excitement of the violence because we have to have no relationship to the people getting killed. We can just enjoy the violence itself, the act of catharsis of violence, the power fantasy of mastery of violence, the power fantasy of the application of violence as we see fit. You know, All of those things are why Hollywood movies play really well, is because there's the baddest badass in the world who's going to come in and be a badass, and the people he crushes and the things he destroys are irrelevant and immaterial. They're faceless material to be crushed. You know they're human targets, and that's that's when I was a kid. What definitely disappointed me about this movie was all of that kind of stuff. Is to sort of tell the truth of what happened, you know. But I I think that it 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 doesn't tell the truth. And now that I'm older, you know I you know can just enjoy it as a movie and just enjoy the excitement of it. But I definitely think well, one of the big tells for me is that we don't know who these characters are who are getting killed. You know if you know there's fatty we know Fatty because he's been called Fatty and we see him and there's one-armed guy, but like the other dudes are just all generic, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, so, and so that's the thing that that it's it's not true, but, but what it does and what Great Westerns do, usually the best ones is that they take the tropes, they say they take the things that we do want to see, they take the... You know, we don't we don't go to Westerns for a fucking morality lesson. We don't go to Westerns to find out violence is bad. We don't go to Westerns to you know what I mean? So it still gives us those things, but it takes it seriously. It does yeah. give it weight, it does give it depth. And so the whole thing, all this stuff about uh, you know, this is what you do in a gunfight. A gun misfires, this guy is a back shooter, this all this stuff, which is standard western shit every western has a scene where a guy trains another guy about what a gunfight is actually like <laughs> you know it's basically every writer goes i'm going to be the guy who writes gun you know gunfights and movies are bullshit with and i'll cross out the movie's part you know from shane teaching the kid everyone you think it's this way but this is how you actually shoot people right that's all a bait and switch whether or not cleaning is aware of it whether whether or not people's is aware of it it's a bait and switch for the audience because you think that that is what it's going to be. But no, this is a fucking actual, real Western. It has the climax, it has the catharsis. All of that was giving it weight, not only giving it weight, making it more believable, getting you into that world, but also it sets up, It sets. it's excellent screenwriting because it sets up the misfiring gun. It yeah. sets up the fear. It's it, it, all that stuff that is demythologizing. What he's actually doing is setting up everything to make you believe that ending yeah that's okay? true So yeah. the actual thing of what people think the function is it's not the function of the movie just like the people that say <laughs> the wild Bunch is a uh, realistic depiction of, of violence or a purely anti-violence movie it's not it's an exploration of it but yeah. uh unforgiving might think it's anti violence it's not it's an exploration of it. and yeah. it and it infuses it with weight and a depth and that's why it works that's why it's a great western and that's why whether or not it seems inconsistent it's only because we've been we've been going we've been going down this other thread and the movie's doing something else if it was one of those downbeat westerns if it if it was actually if the thesis of the movie was those little bill scenes then little uh, uh, um uh will money would just go there and they'd either just shoot him or he'd just go home you know what i mean it's just if the movie yeah. was actually so we- we
0: expect him to like accidentally shoot one of the women, or to get shot in the back by one of the kids, or something like that. But it doesn't happen. I, I think that that bait and switch you're talking about is that the function of the Beauchamp, the writer character, and and his relationship with Little Bill is to have all of the, to throw all of this out of at us to say, you know, gun, you know, gunfights aren't mythological and they aren't this amazing, spectral thing. And the secret all along is that he's been Clint Eastwood all along. That you know, the Clint Eastwood arc is that can i be someone not that guy can i uh, I, if like every other person is just like a guy's going to shoot his own toe off and Mm -hmm. i'm the one who can actually go in there and do exactly what everyone thinks a gunfighter would do can i be someone other than that the fact Mm -hmm. that he brushes off the writer at the end and says i don't want to i don't want you to embellish what happened here or the fact that when the Schofield kid is saying you killed two two marshals at once, and that's like, wasn't it three? You know, it's like, this is Clint Eastwood, guys. <laughs> yes, he killed three marshals, not two.
1: Yeah. And-, <laughs> yeah. and that's why it would be interesting to see the John Malkovich for like if you could go in cold, because if you would, if that ending did happen that way, would it be a, would it, would you believe it? Would it be a shot? I mean, you know, because, because. With Clint Eastwood, yeah, you are like, when is he gonna start shooting people in a saloon? Um, but yeah, so 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 that's my point. Is like, I, I I'm pretty, it's not a movie that's flipping about violence. It's not a movie that that uh, just does, uh, doesn't care or anything like that. But it does care. It has it on its mind. But it still it still functions as a western. It still it still gives you the things you want in a western. But it says this is what comes with it, you know. And that's what the Wild Bunch does too it does it better. It's a better examination of violence than this. Uh, But, uh, and it's almost purely visual, but that says, okay, this is the best, most amazing gunfight you've ever seen in your life. It's, you know, how could you not be excited by this? But yeah, women are going to get trampled. Yeah. There's going to be kids caught in the crossfire. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of innocents shot. So it's like, yeah, we love this fucking shit. We're not going to deny it. We're not going to say that we're not going to, you know, we're not going to preach to you or, you wanted to see a revenge movie and we're going to say revenge is bad. Like, like trying to watch a porno and then just getting a, just, <laughs> you know, watching just, just a, a documentary about STDs. Like, fuck this. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, yeah. So it's like, you know, you, it's the same thing with, with Shane. It's that, yeah, you want to see him face everyone down everything, but, but you also don't want to go, well, that, but that's bullshit. You also at the same time go, yeah, there is a cop you know what i mean and that's what makes unforgiven great in that sense it's not anti violence <laughs> you know and 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 uh and uh yeah so so anyway uh, that was a, that was a bad way to end it it's not anti <laughs> it's
3: not
2: anti violence <laughs> uh, it's pro violence
1: but but what but what i'm saying is like yeah it's it is and there and, and and that and that end scene like You know, on, uh, like I said, you know, uh, as a piece of action filmmaking, it's very, it's not good. The guys just follow; Half of them have the squibs have already gone off before, you know, even when they shoot the guy on the toilet, they can't even count the the amount of bullets or where they shot him. Like, I've never seen a movie about violence that was so uninterested in the way he had actually portrayed violence. But, uh, but everything else around it, that end sequence is designed to be fucking badass and cool. Every, you know. Who who goes into that going? Wow, that really was disturbing. That's really sad that the guy fell back into that life again, especially after the fact that they just fucking beat Morgan Freeman to death, whipped him to death. Yeah. You know, exactly. so so yeah, so so if I was going to my if I was going to try to wrap up what Un- what Unforgiven even is in terms of its relationship to the Western genre and even what it's saying is to me, it's just one more example of the way that these old things in the Western genre, the tropes, the cliches, the stock characters and stuff that when somebody does, doesn't go at it. Like I'm going to do my homage. This is my Sergio Leone scene. This is my John Ford shot. This is that fucking this, that whatever. But they, they, they look at it and they go, and it doesn't have to come from like directly like history and tons of historical research, but anyone that just even goes, what would these characters actually be well how would this actually play out you know and and and, but still can give you that genre stuff that's the that's always going to be the best type of western okay
0: there's there's a a shot uh a series of shots where they're waiting for the woman to bring them the money and you know Schofield kid is confessing he's never killed anybody before kind of famous dialogue scene you know where he says you know we all got it coming kid the way he cuts between him and the kid and you realize the geography of it is that there he's his back is to the kid. He's looking, he's watching the woman as she arrives, but the way that he cuts it looks like he's looking at him. You know, it looks mm-hmm. like it's a, it's that's a reverse shot between the two of them. It's beautiful and it's brilliant. And I think that that is that where you're talking about is like what this movie is, is that he's making, he's doing that magic with the storytelling as much as he's doing it with the actual uh, shots.
1: So. Yeah, and that scene where, where he starts drinking more and more as he's hearing it. That that might be my favorite scene in the movie, or one of my favorite Clint Eastwood scenes, you know, of just him, the realization, and just the slow dream. I mean, well, because it's, that's it's, what you want. It's incredible. You want that.
2: Yeah, this movie has you cheering an alcoholic falling off the wagon, which I think is like a real tell about like what it's actually about, is that you're like, fuck yeah, drink that whiskey. We know it ruined your life before and you regret it. But like the way he's sipping, like, it's awesome to see this alcoholic start drinking again, which could not be more divorced from reality. There's never been one moment where people are happy to see an alcoholic start drinking again, not even his drinking buddies. That's never happened once in reality, you know, let alone like, oh, he's starting a drinking again so he can go get his gun. This will be great.
1: Yeah. And so that's the thing the, the, to frame it as a, as a, as a corrective or a refutation or whatever, as the Western, that's wrong. It's just, it's, it's, it takes the Western seriously. Let and me, that's me, why it's great. It takes me, it, it takes it seriously.
2: Let me ask you this. This'll be my, my question sort of for the wrap up and the, the lead into it. What do you think of it as a capstone to the genre? If it's not a correction and it's not, Uh, a revision uh, and all of that, but if it's more like a, a summation, is it that, is it sort of, it almost feels, I know it's a cliche, but it's felt very, almost impossible to make Westerns in its wake. You know, it feels like this is, this is the cap on what the genre is and what it's been in some ways. Do you think it functions better as that than as a corrective? Do you think that's, do you think that's, uh, uh, too pat of an explanation, sort of that critical narrative of what the genre was and where where it ended. I mean, what do you think of that sort of idea that's
1: out there about the movie? Uh, I mean, maybe I don't.
0: Yeah, does it deserve that legacy? I guess is the question, right? Well, uh,
1: the thing is, hmm, does it deserve that legacy? I not necessarily. I don't know, but I don't know what movie that does. I mean, I I mean. I don't know about being a cap to the genre or, or 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 any of that stuff. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. You don't think of it in those terms. No, not really. I, I not really. And I think, and I honestly think that for me, that's the best way to see it. To me, I see it as as a great western. Yeah. And 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 I and 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 that's my whole point. All this long fucking all this preamble and all this backstory and shit is because it because I do want to say it falls within those parameters. It loves the genre. It upholds the genre. If anything, it infuses uh, new life into old cliches, old tropes. You know, so to say that it is a thing that is, uh, but it but it does it by using the stuff that's already been done. It doesn't it doesn't do it by you know, it does it by actually using that and taking it seriously, and just being a brilliantly written script with a director and star that got out of its way, you know. And I did a great job and brought a lot to it, too. I I, I don't want to diminish Clint Eastwood's contribution here, but. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. But at <laughs> the same if you, time,
0: if you Google first postmodern Western, right, it brings up Once Upon a Time in the West, the Leone film.
2: What? What does the word postmodern even mean anymore? Sorry, go on.
0: I don't. Even, I don't. I don't know. But I think it's interesting to compare this movie to that one, where obviously it is one of the best westerns ever made. It uh, is a great film, and it is very specific in its references. Its cliches. It's uh, pointing out of cliches. I mean, it's something that it's a movie that wouldn't exist without fifty years of westerns before it that Leone was obviously influenced by but it it kind of is looked at at that like whereas unforgiven is kind of looked at as a movie that like changed the game you know that kind of made the whole genre flip the whole genre over on its back do you think it deserves to be thought of like more in terms of once upon a time in the west like this is just a film that like understood the legacy of westerns and incorporated it in an interesting
1: and artistic way so in comparison to once upon a time in the west i think that you know, like, I, I I was denigrating a lot of that, like, homage Western filmmaking. Uh, I think that Once Upon, Once Upon a Time in the West is the apex of that type. Yeah. I mean, I love Once Upon a Time in the West. I think it's great. It's a Western assembled out of other scenes from other Westerns. And it's and it's the best type of Western uh, that does that. Not that other Westerns don't have. I mean, I think obviously, like, the wild ones just borrow stuff from Treasure Sierra Madre, like, wholesale mm. lifts characters and things um uh but like that sort of like uh this is my chance to play in the genre and do all my favorite scenes once upon but once upon a time in the west is the apex of that i don't think unforgiven is that because while i do think that obviously Clint would would have to be an expert on the genre (laughs) in some respect right i don't think that david webb peoples was and so i don't think that he uh was was writing the script with that in mind i think that maybe he was more so the earlier leone films which are still full of homages but that you know bringing in of the, the the gritty reality so that the fable aspect of it and not that those movies The i mean not gritty reality in any actual story sense or anything but just the dirtiness the shabby the the shabbiness the the uh the all the characters that are betraying each other, the violence, the all that shit. Um, that to me, a fistful of dollars is maybe more in line with what David Webb Peebles was doing amongst Leone's films. But yeah, you know, but Leone is a totally, totally different filmmaker. You know, uh, Leone is you know, a student of the genre. I don't think David Webb Peebles was.
0: Even though Unforgiven uh, is dedicated to Leone and Don Siegel. Always just kind of makes me think.
1: Yes, yes, and what's uh, thinking
0: about him, you know.
1: Well, yeah, and I think that's one of those things that uh clearly, I think those, those you know, those are the seminal directors, right, and in, uh, in his life, and so I think Don Siegel showed him what he thought a director should be, you know, efficient, no nonsense, and I think that Leone showed him what a director wait well, didn't want to, what. The type of filmmaking he didn't want to do. Obviously, he still like respected and loved Leonie, but that that type of filmmaking, I think, uh, more than anything, showed like Clint Eastwood like I don't want to make movies this way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, if if Leonie's influence on Clint Eastwood as a director, I would say that is his biggest influence on him, and <laughs> showing him the type of director he didn't want to be. Um, but, uh, but. Uh, yeah so I don't know. I don't know. is that know
2: anything else. Thank you for doing this episode this This is amazing. This is like you know, one of the best conversations we've ever had on here i I really love listening to you talk about all this and talk about you know that's a thing that's funny is I know one of the reactions I find on the internet and when you do a podcast is if you speak in any way thoughtfully but negatively about a film that people love. They freak the fuck out about it, right? And I really like the opportunity to speak thoughtfully and critically about a movie I love like Unforgiven to really dig into it and define what it is and what it is not and how it works and how it doesn't and so this kind of conversation I find very very satisfying even though I know like for the first hour and a half of it people are going to be screaming at their radios you know kind of thing with it but this is like this is a kind of conversation I find just immensely satisfying to have about a film I love
1: well it's worthy of it I, I think it's worthy of it and I am not someone who Obviously I have the filmmakers and stuff that I love and respect and everything, but I'm not some, I, I don't ever want to, you know, overlook a sh- stupid thing. I, I might, I might, I don't want to be one of those guys who thinks they're smarter than the filmmakers. Yeah. I always want to examine why they made choices that I maybe don't like, you know, like the casting of Scar and the searchers or other things. Like I want to, obviously everyone hates that. I want to delve into why the fuck did they do that? Yeah. Um, and so, so um yeah so in terms of i i, I get i lose my train so easy, <laughs> easily uh but uh uh, uh wait what, what was the point you were making before i got
2: what's that done? i like to have a thoughtful conversation oh, yeah. about a film i love that isn't just shitting praise on it for two hours you know
1: yeah yeah so i always yeah i want to actually assess what's there i think the the movies are worth it i don't go in for that type of uh, either just yeah fanboyishness, or just I mean I don't know I, I the the people that just act like no one could, they could do nothing wrong. Yeah, I still understand the Ridley Scott fans. I don't understand. It. I didn't like ex- <laughs> the guy makes five movies every fucking year. I do not get it, but whatever. <laughs> but like, you know, if you, there's just this contingency of just, like, I watched, like
2: I just watched I just watch Mad Matchstick Men for the first time, and it's so bad I was like maybe Alien is bad. That's how bad Matchstick Men is. Is I was like, maybe Alien is bad. That's how much this movie fucking sucks.
1: But Uh, but my point is, I actually with my Twitter threads and everything, like I've actually had a pretty decent time. I've only maybe had a couple times where someone said something, and I think part of that is uh, that I will often put something like, "This is not. This is an examination. It's not a critique. You know what I mean." I think and, it's uh, like I you're will, very
3: yeah.
2: you're very assiduously careful with your research and thoughtful and know what you're talking about you're an intimidating figure to get in an argument with you know what I mean I think that that's that it's if somebody comes at you they better fucking know what they're talking about they better know you know 1880s belt loops or they're gonna get gonna get you know knocked out Dave <laughs> well
1: but well uh, but the thing is i so my time on twitter i've only seen i've had a great time i've, I've only i've yeah. seen other people have bad times i don't know if you guys have ever seen anything like that but uh, <laughs> uh so when but, we uh, even
2: have a viral tweet there's like three times i've had a viral tweet and it sucks so fucking bad at any rate
0: <laughs> no but, but yeah, your thread, your time. thread is the reason i'm still on twitter you know yeah. things like that i mean that's yeah. you're just doing something critically that nobody else is doing. most threads are like my cousin and I went to the Jersey Shore and this crazy thing happened you know to actually have uh you know something that belongs in a textbook you know as a thread on Twitter <laughs> It's really amazing you're <laughs> you're revising the revision with this you know I love yeah. it
1: yeah. this is this is my chance to be the little bill to everyone else's Bill champ <laughs> or or maybe William money I would say William money that's better I I do often we'll start my thread, like the unforgiven thread. I do say, like, "Hey, if 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 this is really gonna bother you, this kind of analysis, here's a complimentary brothel token. Go get fucked." <laughs> so I do kind of let people know, like, if you're gonna engage with this, like, this is what we're gonna talk about. So just know what you're getting into. If you don't like it, just leave now, or say, or I will them say, or comment something so I can block you, so you don't ever have to be bothered with this shit again. <laughs> so I do kind of. I come out guns blazing oftentimes so maybe that helps too but um but uh so far i haven't really had that, those kind of bad experiences on twitter but uh yeah but with you know like with the race stuff and Unforgiven, it's like ooh, uh, do i want to put this <laughs> yeah. uh, you know and you know, that could be screenshotted and taken out of context and yeah. or yeah. misinterpreted I, an- and
0: real- I understand that i understand that and as much as i hope that you do pick up the thread one day and and do more with it like you don't need to it's so great as it is and now we don't have to worry about the headache
2: yeah Yeah. thank you so much for doing this david thank you so much for talking unforgiven with us this was really great
1: thanks for having me i i I hope it was a little uh it was coherent for people so
2: absolutely absolutely more coherent than we usually are i'd say
1: okay well that's great um just remember unforgiven great movie Doesn't deserve all the things that people say about it, but deserves got nothing to do with it.